morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 119, Dalmatians, no. (laughs) (laughs) We stopped doing that a while ago, (laughs) (laughs) Of the Fade to Black podcast, I'm Clarice Lockery. I'm Hannah Flint. And I'm Amon Woman. This week, the time of Barbenheimer is finally upon us. Come on. The internet is going wild. Amon chats to Ludwig Göransson about scoring the end of the world in Oppenheimer while we review the film before a visit to Greta Gerwig's dream house as we chat Barbie. Plus, things get freaky with They Cloned Tyrone. Also in our hot take, we will lay out all the things that you need to know about the SAG after a strike. Yon-yon! I was wondering how long it was going to take before we got one of those today. I should have, I should have, I should have bet something on it. A minute and fifteen seconds into the pod, and we're here. Yeah. This podcast was recorded during the 2023 WGA and SAG after strikes. Without the labor of the writers and actors currently on strike, the movies being covered here today wouldn't exist. So, yeah. Say a thank you to your local Ryan Gosling. Also, <laughs> if you want to donate, there is something called. Um, entertainmentcommunity.org yeah, where you yeah. can also donate to a fund to support uh, the actors who are bit millionaires. <laughs> yeah, well, I think <laughs> it's not just actors, it's and crew all the workers crew people, and stuff. Yeah. everyone affected. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, uh, we'll put it in the uh, show notes. A link. Yes. Oh, I'm hosting. Thank <laughs> you to how people are doing. Oh my god, I'm so thrown by being in a different environment. <laughs> <laughs> We decided, uh, well, actually, we decided because of this week's Barbie, we decided to segregate ourselves. In Barbie land. And so to, for the female solidarity, uh, Clarice decided to record at my flat. Yeah. And Aman is on his own in Kendom in what, what would. <laughs> and that's where he shall remain. Aman, how is the Kendom? <laughs> I'm just Ken. Uh, I may or may not be singing that song at multiple points throughout this podcast. Things are well in Kendam, although they have just gotten noisier because I have just heard my niece and nephew who have just arrived. Uh, so there might be some special guest stars on this particular oh. episode of the podcast. We should also say that we're back like we never left. We took a week off last week because uh, things were a bit busy in all our individual worlds. Um, but yeah, we're back. We're reunited. It feels good. I also, I also feel kind of bad. I thought we might. I didn't realize we didn't put out like, like a little tweet saying we'll be back. We just yeah. ghosted our audience. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's it's Friday as we record this. Once we're done recording, I, I will send out uh, a tweet just to say that we, we are back. We initiated ghost protocol. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no point after the fact we we could do it. I mean, yeah. There's a couple of yeah. people who have been asking what happened to this week's pod, and I've been. I, I should let them before. let them wait. Keep, keep <laughs> guessing. Uh, keep we're, we're, we're fade to black. We're mysterious. Yeah, but honestly, Ooh, you're not what, like a regular podcast. <laughs> you're a cool podcast. What a whopper of a week, though. Like I, I tweeted this earlier, but I think this is the best week for new releases so far this year. Um, which is probably a spoiler in terms of what we think about these movies. I don't know, um, but. I think it's a pretty good week. Yeah, but I'm also kind of wait for it to be over. Why not? <laughs> Why? Why? 
Because I'm, because it always happens. Like everyone's excited about Barbenheimer, and then suddenly it's like, no, you can't enjoy Barbenheimer. And actually, you can't enjoy Barbenheimer in this way because even though this is an imaginary thing that people just invented, because someone invented a hashtag, suddenly people are gatekeeping how you're supposed to enjoy it or not enjoy it. It's just like, eh, <laughs> like, eh, just yeah. stop being so fucking miserable. I'm sorry, but there's too many miserable people online this week, and this room is boring. When it's the good thing about Barbenheimer has been, like, I don't know about the pink mushroom clouds. That feels like a very bad taste. Yeah. yeah. I do think (laughs) it's so wonderful and nice to just see people equally excited about two incredibly different films. (laughs) And for both of the films to have been critically well-received, I mean, we'll see what we think of them. But, like... I think we should all stop and pause for a moment and just like remember how nice it is with the the and it's not just like the cinematic community it's like everybody like my friend had to cancel on me because her mum wanted to see Barbie so, <laughs> <laughs> like the mums are getting involved like everybody's getting involved it's yeah. really nice yeah. yeah exactly and do you I mean you had a very Barbie intensive week I've, I've, I'm officially the Barbie I am actually film critic Barbie <laughs> I've officially uh, transcended (laughs) for that status. (laughs) Yeah, I like did so much stuff with like MTV. We did an MTV Live that was on TikTok with Warner Brothers where it was Margot, Greta, Ryan, Simu, Issa and America Ferreira. And that was really fun. But it was, my favourite bit was when like, um, they were talking about, Oh, yeah, you know, she did this movie church, basically, didn't she? Like, on a Sunday morning, she would have all the cast and crew down to watch, like, films that were inspired, that inspired the film. And um, she was like, oh, yeah, we kind of watched His Girl Friday and The Red Shoes. And I said, did you watch Wings of the Desire? Because, for me, that's, like, the film that I get, that, I mean, we'll get into it. But they were like, they were like, oh, wow, yeah, like, that was one of the earliest films we kind of referenced and recognised. Like, how did you know? And I kind of was like... Do they think because I'm hosting on MTV that I don't know anything about films? <laughs> but you know what I mean? I was like, but, and I was like, I worked because that's like, yes, I do know the work of Will Wimlanders. Thank you. But yeah, it was one no, of those I think, I think people, I've had that in interviews before because I was talking to um, Rob Marshall about Mary Poppins Returns and I referenced Dangerous When Wet and he was so pleased by it that he had his like assistant chased me down in the hallway afterwards to be like Rob just wanted to say he really enjoyed the interview and it wasn't because I did it was because yeah. I referenced Dangerous When Wet and he was like his mind was blown yeah that I knew an Esther Williams well movie. Greta and Margot's cl- brains were clearly blown that I recognize that I'm very pleased <laughs> yeah that I saw so it. that's our tips to other film critics yeah reference movies you've seen they really like it yeah <laughs> and then I hosted a few things but yeah I've seen Barbie twice now I'm excited to chat <gasps> about it oh yeah Spoiler alert, I'm jealous that that kind of gives away what I thought of it, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've teased it enough, let's get into the the Barbin, but how do we, they cloned, Barbin, they cloned by Barbenheimer, let's get into it. <laughs> that is the hashtag that I was greeted with, uh, somebody messaged that to me earlier this week. Uh, I stan it, I like it, so it shall be. So it is. The clone. <laughs> <laughs> well, Amon, do you want to let's do you tell us about your very fun interview that you did? Because I like this person a lot. I will. I will. But first, a trailer for Oppenheimer. 
You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. should do the pause together more often just for this yeah, do you want to just come around to my yeah. i'll come out to yours yes because i have a real apartment now for the meantime <laughs> <laughs> uh during world war ii lieutenant general leslie groves jr appoints physicist j robert oppenheimer to work on the top secret manhattan project oppenheimer and a team of scientists spend years developing and designing the atomic bomb this is written and directed by one christopher nolan and it stars Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, Josh Hartnett, Casey Affleck, Rami Malek, Kenneth Branagh, and also pretty much half of Hollywood. Uh, Wes Anderson, I, I thought Asteroid City was going to be the most star-studded film this year. And I felt like Christopher Nolan saw that movie and was like, huh, that's cute. Watch this. Because, my goodness, <laughs> that's a whole lot of recognizable people in this movie. Uh, oh my whole... God, we didn't even shout out Alden Ehrenreich. He's also in this. He's like <laughs> actually in it. He's actually, he's got lines and everything. I'm so proud of him. That's how I know Hannah wrote the script and not Clarice. Because there's no, no way No, I wrote it. Oh I my was, gosh! I, I wow! Was, I, I copied over this list and I would assume he would be right at the top because... Excuse me, I also do he appreciate really Alden Ehrenreich. <laughs> There's appreciate and then there's appreciate. I'm not sure you're on Clarice's level, Hannah. You know what? I feel like Alden... Oh, no, of course. But I feel like Alden Erroy, it's just made me think... He makes me remind me of Anton Yelchin. I feel like they're kind of... Yes. Like, he's doing the roles that Anton Yelchin probably would have... Yeah. Like, I could see Anton Yelchin as Han Solo. He would have been a great Han Solo. Uh, (laughs) R.I.P. Sorry, Downer. I mean, it's... it's, We're about to talk about Oppenheimer, so Downer, Downer. This is a good (laughs) time. Go you mean this is a laugh a minute comedy? I just, I, I was really hoping that, I'm joking. Um, this... Well, it's all a joke. <laughs> it's the biggest joke of all, if we're to quote uh, the comedian in Watchmen, which obviously Captain Atomic, Manhattan, Miss Manhattan is based on Oppenheimer. It's all the connected, blue guy. man. The blue guy. Let's talk about this later. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I don't, because I don't understand how that works, but let's talk about it later because it's going to take too long to explain. <laughs> I can't wait for that conversation. But also for this conversation, uh, I got to speak with Ludwig Göransson, uh, who composed this movie. This is his second collaboration with Christopher Nolan after he worked on Tenet. He's a composer that I've been a massive fan of for a very long time. I think... The first time I took notice of him was Creed, uh, his score for that 2015 Ryan Coogler masterpiece for me. I absolutely loved that film. And of course, he won the Oscar for Black Panther. He's gone on to score Turning Red. Uh, he also scored Venom, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure Chris enjoyed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Venom 2, though. He did not I just want to clarify, because this is important. I don't like <laughs> Venom 1. 
I feel like you always really? say I like Venom. I don't like Venom 1. I don't like it. I like Venom 2. Okay. <laughs> very, they're very different movies. Venom 1 doesn't have Venom coming out at a club and everyone's like, we love you, Venom. <laughs> <laughs> they're very different movies. Sorry. I, I, I just I shall... had to like get no, the record no, straight. You did. You did. I'm glad you did. I shall remember it going forward. Um, but yeah, I've been wanting to chat with him for a very long time. And we finally this is the first time you spoke to him? This is oh the my first God. time. I've been wanting to speak to him for like literally oh, wow. eight years. Um, wow. And it just has never been able to work out with none of the outlets that I've written for. But for this, we got it to happen. I love that the first time that he's speaking to him is for this podcast. <laughs> that's how that's how elite this podcast is. <laughs> it was actually pretty amazing because uh, I also, I, I, got a, I got a double slot in the end because I'm also doing a longer piece on him for the Curzon Journal. So it wasn't 15 minutes, it wasn't 30 minutes, I actually got an hour with him, um, uh, which was amazing. And um, 15 minutes of that hour are what you are about to listen to. Uh, so please enjoy this conversation with me and the composer of Oppenheimer and so much more, Ludwig Gorenson. Welcome to the Fade to Black podcast, Ludwig Gorenson. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm great and it's nice to be here and I'm excited to talk to you. Excited to talk to you too. I've uh, been a big fan for a while. I loved your work on Oppenheimer. So first and foremost, congrats. I know that we're, we're talking the day after the UK premiere. I know that you were in attendance. You were in the audience watching that film for the first time. I presume that was your first time watching it with an audience. How did that feel as, as the composer of this film? Oh, it was extremely rewarding. It was so, it was, because this is the first time I saw it on IMAX for the first time, and mm -hmm. also in that theater where the sound was incredible, the BFI theater. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also brought my my fam, my parents, and my sister with me from from Sweden, so I got to see it together with them for the first time. And just seeing, you know, the audience reactions, hearing the audience reactions, and seeing how engaged, you know, people are, and people are in this movie. Uh, was was beautiful and 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 also it even opened up for conversations with with for me and my parents that you know about kind of what's going on in the world now and and I think I mean they're they're Swedish so it's like it's 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 um it's I, I know it's a it's a it's a special time very different time around the whole world but but I think I think maybe the movie also helped out to for some for some interesting discussions that maybe you wouldn't talk about otherwise. Absolutely. As a composer, are you able to tell when your music is really landing with audiences? On every every music cue after it's done, mm. I look around and I'm just <laughs> and I'm waiting for the applause and they never happen. <laughs> if I was there, I would have been the guy applauding. I'm just saying. <laughs> I remember very clearly watching Avengers Infinity War. Mm -hmm. And that was only two months after Black Panther came out. Yep. But that score is fantastic. And I remember that, that, that line from Captain America, I know someone. And as he's saying that the Wakandan drums are starting up, people were reacting to that yeah. before it ever switched to yeah. Wakanda. And that, I think, is a sign of the incredible work but also the recognizability of that score do you remember that moment at all watching that with the audience and thinking okay i must have really this, this people really connect with this in a deep way man i remember uh yeah that, that was that was actually a cool 
I do remember that because mm. I think I heard somewhere that when they screened it, when they test screened it, and that movie came on, and that music came on, the Wakanda theme came on, mm -hmm. and people started applauding in the test screenings. I think there was like a, some 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 dialogue lines afterwards that because yeah. <laughs> because of the applauding and cheering, they actually mm. like changed the cut so they allowed for more time for the music to mm. play out so that people could cheer and then the dialogue happened um, <laughs> and I think that was uh, like I never heard anything like that before and I thought and it was obviously very gratifying um, to see to obviously people love the character but also how even you, before you see the character you just hear a sound and then immediately that will make people react and uh, and uh, and uh, yeah, that was a, that was a special moment, and 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 yeah, of course it's it's really fun, uh, and to see when that happens, and uh, it's it's been a few. There is always a few mo a few moments in a, there's been a few movies where, you know, where the, you get cheer out of a musical performance, but but it's not. I know it's especially not on the new movie when no one's seen it before. You know, right. I think mostly when it comes when it comes to that, you know, the the applause or the gratifying cheers from from something is because they recognize it, right? Mm -hmm. Right. There's uh, a musical right. moment that they recognize. Right. So with Oppenheimer, had you kept in touch with Nolan in the period before he told you about Oppenheimer and after you finished working on Tenet? And did you have any expectations on working with Nolan again after Tenet? Um, yeah, I mean, I did, I did have, you know, of course it, it would have been and like I enjoyed working on Tenet so much, and I, I feel like it was extremely successful, and what we did was very special. And also having following, been following Chris's career, you know, one of the reasons why he is so, you know, why he's so successful is that he he really, you know, he's he really cherishes cherishes and respects his relationships. You know, he's he, you know, I think this is Hoyt's four mo fourth movie. You know, he's, he's, he has these collaborators, that, and, and, and I think one of the important aspects of creating art is to have these relationships with collaborative relationships that you build onto, right? Mm -hmm. So, but he's also not, you know, even though like after Tenet we kept in touch, we like, we talk, and we like, I see him and we talk about music, about film, and, but he's never, he, he's also never really, he never gives any hints on what he's doing next, <laughs> you know? Okay. So the phone call about, you know, Kind of comes out of the blue, you know. Mm. It's like, okay. do you want to you want to read the script for my new movie tomorrow? Uh, let me just check my schedule. Yeah, I'm free. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine was your response. Um, <laughs> I'm very intrigued because I've spoken to a lot of composers, and they all have sort of differing answers to this. But you like writing and scoring to scripts rather than writing to picture. I'm very intrigued about why that's the thing that gets your creative juices flowing because for other composers like you know, i need to wait till i actually see visuals of what i'm doing before i really get in the flow of things why is it scripts for you that work for your process well i feel like for me um when you're writing for a script or for an idea or for something you know for a for a you know you could you know for words or for anything you know, you have the you have the picture in your mind, and I think for me, what comes out is more, it's more of a musical idea. So it's it's it's, it's more of a, a completed musical idea, rather mm. than seeing something on the screen 
and then trying to follow it and trying to like channel what's on screen. Um, which, which I, I mean, I obviously do that too when, when, when it gets time for mm -hmm. that. Uh, because mm -hmm. it's very important that you you're also following the screen and following what's happening, but but I think it's it's for me it's very rewarding and it's it's really turn the screen on, to turn the screen off and and just sit there with with an idea or with a with a it can be a, a script it could be a conversation with the filmmaker, it can be something mm -hmm. you talked about during lunch and and you you're and you get it, you want to get that emotion you get want to get that feeling out and you. You want to get it out as a with no limitations. It can be become a four-minute mm -hmm. piece. It, it has a start, a beginning, an end, and it's a it's a five-minute piece of music. Mm -hmm. Rather than sitting and having a writing music for a scene that's one minute and forty-seven seconds long, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. it's the music just feels it just feels more like a for me it, it's more it feels more like a real piece of music than just something that was created for something else. Yeah. No, I totally get that. Um, I know from the first Black Panther, you took a trip to Senegal uh, to to get into the mindset and to learn about the sounds. I know for the second Black Panther, you went to Nigeria, which is where I'm from, incidentally. Um, did you take any trip in advance of this film uh, to help you with your process and get into the mindset of Oppenheimer at all? And what was it yourself? Um... No, I on this on this film it was, um, you know, it's it's one of the first things that Chris mentioned on this movie was to he wanted to experiment with the violin, mm -hmm. and he wanted that to be like the main sound and instrument for the channel Oppenheimer's emotional state. Mm -hmm. And my wife is a violinist, so that was like for me, you know, spending time together and, and experiment and with that with her instrument and, and that was that was kind of how the start of the of the score came about and in terms of like finding a sound world and creating um, something something unique to the film. So that was that was the first journey on, on Oppenheimer. Is that your wife doing that solo violin early on in the film? Yeah. Because that's incredible piece of music. I, I was sitting next to my friend and I was like, this is incredible. <laughs> I remember that moment specifically. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about what went into that and how that reflects Oppenheimer's mindset? Oh, cool. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, it's, 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 um, it was a very, for me, how that came about was, one of the first things that Chris showed me after reading the script was uh, some of the visual graphics tests that he and Andrew Jackson, the visual supervisor, uh, was working on. And he invited me to, to, a, to a, a screening at the IMAX theater in, in Universal City. And uh, we're sitting in there and, and I'm watching 20 minutes of like footage from just experimentation with, it's, it's all analog it's no cgi you know it's just stuff mm. and it's all the experimentation that they did with like atoms swirling around and this fluorescent lights just hitting you from all parts of the screen and and it was just such a visceral um impact on me and mm. and i and that's when i i thought like that's how i want the music to feel like mm. and then that was the that was obviously the big challenge and but that i feel like it came out that it came out in that piece of music 
and um, I think it's called "Can You Hear the Music on the on the on the Record," and it's it, that's also the Kenny Branagh's line right before the music hits. Um, right. And uh, how what the what the music there is doing is, it's 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 a violin. There's a string line, a violin line that that consists of a hexatonic scale, which is six notes, um, and it goes up and it goes and then when it goes down, it goes faster and then. When it goes up again, it goes slower, and then when it goes faster, it goes down, it goes even faster. So it's an arpeggio up and down, and like every time it goes up and down, like it changes speed. So it's mm -hmm. a total of twenty-one tempo changes. And wow. when it that when the piece ends, it's three times faster than when it started. It starts in eighty BPM and ends in three hundred sixty BPM. Um, so how to achieve that? <laughs> I thought. When, when we when we st when we were going to record that with a le with a live string orchestra, I thought that was going to be impossible to for them to perform because it's mm. it's already fast and it, and, and you, it's so many tempo changes. So I don't think it was going to be possible to do live. Mm. And so I first we recorded it in sections. We did four bars, we stopped. We did four bars, we stopped. And then I just taped it together, and it sounded cool, but it just kind of also sounded not real. And then uh, we kind of figure out, um, you know, m uh, my wife Serena. She's been playing with with that group for twenty years, and she knows. She also knows how incredible they are. And she was like, you know, what if you try to do this in one take, and you just give them a new tempo before every tempo change? You give them the new tempo in their ears, in the clicks in their ears before it actually happens. Mm -hmm. So we started. We we did it. We tried it once in, in one take and, and they all nailed it. And it was just when I heard that for the first time, I was like, oh, this is, you know, <laughs> the, 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 it just breathes, breathes so much new life into that piece of music. Mm -hmm. and, and then obviously there's a, bunch of, there's, there's a bunch of production in it too, with synths playing in a different metric modulations under it. And, and it just, I don't know, it, it, just, it just really felt like, I, I felt like that visual that I had seen in the beginning with this, that with the spinning atoms. That's mm -hmm. that that visual came to life in music. Yeah. That's incredible. I wish I was there to see that red arm. That sounds amazing. <laughs> um, you've written a lot of memorable themes that have become really part of pop culture. I think of Black Panther. I think of Mandalorian, especially. Where is for you the weirdest and wildest place you've heard your work over the years? Where I've heard my work. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um, well, I feel like I feel like uh, I feel like with the Mandalorian theme, like that, that. There's always there's always stuff popping up online with that, where like people do <laughs> their own crazy versions, or like there was some. Uh, I don't know. There was like a video that that circulated online a couple months ago, where like. A DJ was dropping the beat over it, and you saw like people going crazy. I don't know if you, did you see that video. I've not seen that video, but that sounds amazing. Or the video with the, with the, with the cat bumping his head. You know, it's like what? Oh, <laughs> as soon as this interview is done, I'm searching for that. That sounds incredible. Um, I was oh, and then Disney there was also then then there was also something on Instagram where people started using the Tenet theme and started going reverse, started going backwards. <laughs> like very cool. Yeah. <laughs> how how far down that rabbit hole do you go at times? Do you have to stop yourself or? Uh, 
<laughs> no, it's it's just I, it every now and then just someone is like sending me a you know just sending me those texts and like it's it's just really fun to see. <laughs> Composing is a largely solitary job. Yeah. But as you've grown in stature over the years and met more people from the composer community, my question is, what does it feel like to talk to people who really get it? And what do you typically find yourself talking about in those conversations with your peers? About film scoring? Yeah. Uh, yeah, like some, some, you know, some of the times we, you know, we, we do meet up. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, I love it. And uh, I, uh, yeah, it was just, you know, I think, um, I, th I love exchange the exchange of, of of ideas or tip tips and tricks and you know I was um, I was just here in in London two days ago I had dinner with uh, Daniel Pemberton oh, and you know I was like <laughs> I just did, I just interviewed him a couple of weeks ago maybe a little but his across the spine of us score is absolutely bonkers insane amazing yeah, um, so so just, yeah so just being able to like yeah just like you know just feel like you're, you know, just asking questions and, and getting, you know, how do you do that? And how do you do that? And like, that's awesome. And it's like, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's important to also, you know, come out of your, you know, being able to be part of the community and, and, and I cherish those moments. Have you gotten to meet uh, John Williams or Danny Elfman? I know there are two heroes of yours uh, early on. I met, uh, John Williams, uh, I went up to him on the Oscars uh, this last, I think it was this year, uh, and uh, because he was nominated, nominated, yeah. and so I was sitting across the aisle from him. So I went up to him and you know yeah. talked to him a little bit and talked about how much I love his. I was I was I was reasonably listening a lot to his score, a movie called Earthquake, and I was like asking him how he did it. Um, <laughs> and he said he couldn't. He couldn't really. It was like in sometime in the seventies, I think. So he couldn't really remember what he was thinking at that time. Um, but he was appreciating of the of the, of the feedback it gave. Um, and then Danny Elfman, I met um, one time at the Hollywood Bowl after I think maybe it was after a Nightmare Before Christmas concert. But I didn't get. I didn't really get the chance to ask him what he was thinking when he was doing some of his music, but. But someday I'll have more of a chance to ask him some, some of his, uh, some of his tips and tricks. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating, I'm sure, to get into both of those people's heads because yeah. wow, I remember I was in Disneyland Paris uh, not long ago, and they had your Black Panther theme as part of that the, the MCU medley. Oh, cool. And, uh, and yeah, I think we went, and they had just started doing the. Um, uh, Dora Milaje presentation, so uh -huh. they, they had that with that, which is, it was very cool. Look, if you haven't gone, you should probably go. <laughs> it's, it's very good. Um, your rise over the last five years, especially, has been just incredible and awesome to see. Uh, I want to know how have you stayed hungry and maintained that motivation, and has what drives you to be great evolved over the years, or has it remained the same? Oh, um, I think it's definitely stayed the same. Uh, and I think a lot about, you know, I, I mean, I'm always evolving, hopefully, and I think I'm evolving through the work that I do. And I think 
you know, I'm fortunate enough to work with collaborators that that have a same kind of feeling that in, in terms of like not always try to do something um, new and always trying to do something challenging and something that's also rewarding. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been very, um, I've been lucky enough to, the, for, with the last five years of all the work that I've done, feel like I'm getting something back out of it. Because um, I like to do, you know, I like to do projects when I can just fully commit to something, you know, go mm-hmm. 200% into this film, like breathe it, live with, live it, you know, commit and, 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 and obviously, you know, <clears throat> feel like I'm coming out on the other side as, 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 a, as, as a new person and, and both mm-hmm. musically, but also personally, um, mm-hmm. and feel like I'm growing and I'm getting more, you know, I have a, I'm getting more in tools to my toolbox and, and, um, but also like, I'm also, you know, I'm also trying to approach every project in a completely different way. Like feel like I'm also discovering something new. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, it's it's been a it's been a pretty intense, uh, crazy ride these last five years. So, yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing the next five and the next five <laughs> after that. Uh, final question for you: Where does the Oscar hang right now in the Ludwig Göransson household? Oh. <laughs> is it the first thing we see as we walk through the door, or is it hidden away somewhere? No, it's actually uh, the doorbell. You just <laughs> fantastic. Uh, fantastic. No, it's it's in the studio. It's in the bookshelf at the studio. So very cool, very cool. Uh, Ludwig, thank you so much for your time. Congrats again on this score. Uh, yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So uh, there's a lot to get into in this three-hour movie um, that Christopher Nolan has made for us. I think. We should probably start with the storytelling uh, of it all because this this film is told in a non-linear fashion, and I think that works given the amount of time periods that it's delving into, given the amount of characters that it wants to get the viewpoint on. Do you feel like the way in which Christopher Nolan told the story worked for the story he was telling and also the characters he was showcasing Hannah Flit? I really enjoyed the structure um, and the framing of this story. I love like a legal kind of drama. I love that sort of their hearing thing. So the fact that we get like a double dose of that. So it's set within three time periods um, and using kind of color to contrast between before and like before bomb, after bomb. Um, I thought that really worked really well. I think it also kind of like, you know, I think there's this thing where, of course, this is like his- history and you can just read a book and find out what's happened. But I didn't know the history. So it felt really intriguing certain parts when we had the kind of, um, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I think the fact that they created this like kind of, I don't want to say twist, but like a kind of way where it kind of like, um, uh, misdirection. Um, I thought that was really well done and paced, and I think it brought out, brought out some amazing performances. I love a cross examine, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and you know we mentioned Alden Ehrenreich, and you know he's part of the kind of situation with Robert Downey Jr.'s character, who is Stross, uh, who is trying to get confirmation to be a part of. Is it is it Eisenhower's government? Yes. Or Lyndon B. Yeah, Eisenhower's government. Eisenhower. 
right. cabinet, yeah. And then we have like uh, kind of a sub, you know, an uh, an earlier situation government, and it's like a closed, closed, um, closed book hearing um, for Oppenheimer trying to get his security clearance, appealing his security security clearance being revoked. But I think it really worked well because also, as again, it's three hours. I love the fact that we got kind of sort of a kind of how who he is and how this came came to be. And I think there's something really powerful about filmmakers who managed to take something that's actually quite complicated and complex but really get into the intellectualist discussion of like how these things are made the science behind these things and also the kind of philosophical issues that are being raised with whether they just because they can build a bomb doesn't mean they should use it (laughs) i think that like that was a really interesting thing that they played out and i think you know i felt like i love it because i don't know anything about like theoretical quantum physics or how the bomb was being made and it kind of in a way I compare it to like tar or whiplash in the sense of you know you're getting behind like what it means to be a composer this world that I don't know anything about but I find it really intriguing and interesting it's not boring or like whiplash learning like you know that sort of thing that I think when filmmakers are able to take a subject that's quite specific um and make it you know um accessible I think that's a really mark of a great storyteller. Uh, so yeah, I actually really enjoyed that that frame. Yeah, I I spent I tweeted something because after watching this movie, I spent a really really long time thinking about the difference between like Oppenheimer, which is something which I what I so admire it for, which I think Nolan is so fantastic at doing, is like the the sense of understanding in in fully like you can fully intellectualize and you see every point and it's Mm. a big puzzle and you see the whole puzzle completed about like morally why this was so evil and i think everyone's going to come away from oppenheimer with such a profound understanding of like what happened why it happened yeah again why why it was so evil and i think the one thing that it didn't have and i've been like struggling with whether this is a negative or not because this isn't the sort of movie that Christopher Nolan was trying to make mm-hmm. and I fully understand that is that if have you seen maybe you've seen the Twin Peaks season three the episode eight which also has yeah the atom bomb going on the same sequence of them testing it in Nevada and I couldn't stop thinking about that because watching that and how David Lynch shoots it and they shoot that same incident in history in very different ways and the way that Nolan does it it's like it's a lot of close-up of flames and you watch it and you go wow I can see how immense and sort of like like there's something wondrous about it if I was there and I was one of the scientists I'd be so like blown blown away is probably the wrong word I would be so (laughs) I would be so impressed by by what this this thing was and it's only when you understand the context of the weapon that they made, you go, oh my God, no, it's horrific. While the way that David Lynch shoots it and he sort of goes from a wide angle over and you just go in tighter, 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 and then you're inside the nuclear bomb, gave me literal nightmares. I had nightmares afterwards. And like, I'm somebody who's always been very afraid of like nuclear warfare. And I think about it a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of knew about the Manhattan Project because my scared brain researched it. (laughs) Um, 
And I, I think like the one thing that would have pushed this for me into the realm of like masterwork, which I know a lot of people are describing it as, and I'm not against that, is if I had felt that like deep in my bones. And I'm calling it bone feel. You know, when you watch something and you're like, you don't just understand it on an intellectual level. You feel it in every inch of your body and to come away going fucking hell like what the fuck did they create because i think that's it i can't wrap my head around how how they just created that and then they had to live with it for the rest of their lives and it blows my mind because i need to stop saying (laughs) it really like fucks me up because i think about how oppenheimer lived the rest of his life like justifying the fact that they bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki and he he never relented on that he never showed any regret for it and yet he didn't want them to pursue further to make the H-bomb which is sort of what the movie covers Mm. like I don't I don't understand and like I like that the movie tackles that but I think it sorry this is a really long-winded way of saying I really liked it I think it wasn't maybe as scary as it needed to be. Like, it mm. should have scared the living shit out of everybody to really get the message across. Yeah. But I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I think this is, I think sometimes you have the problem with, like, the story that he wants to tell is, like, this kind of, like, complex human being who mm. basically, like, invented, like, as he said, like, the story of world. He invented something that he obviously as a scientist there's the discovery and wanted to see things but you can't control society mm. and how that was applied and I think that's and I think in a way so much of it is I, I appreciate how much of it is showing how uh frustrating Oppenheimer is and the fact that he wouldn't pick a side he was just kind of towing the party line like he'd go off back and forth on things but still want to be a part of it and it just felt a bit like okay you're either for it or you, you I don't feel like you can be in this middle position yeah. and but it's like but he refused to kind of like box himself into one ideology but then also I think that what's also made him completely like um I I, I suppose just the shame and guilt he felt, I suppose, all his life. So he's like, well, I can't change the past, but I can only see if I can change the future. But that being said, yeah, I don't know. I think, I know what you're saying about the bone in your bones. Like when I watched Interstellar, I felt that in my bones. Yeah. And I think there's certain elements and I love the fact that it's an IMAX because there is this kind of like the epicness, the the scale of what was going on. You get that, you know, and it's based on a book where it's called American Prometheus. So you do get to think it's like a, this is what happens when, humans meddle with godlike power you know devastation um and i there's also moments where i just felt it was very malik-esque you know the way they kind of there's a bit of a vo- with the voiceover with a lot of like images of like what would the fusion look like it's certainly yeah. in the early parts of the film which i quite enjoyed like you know him uncontextualizing who he was as a young man and what he was and i suppose the connection between science and art and cute at the time, obviously Dali coming out and like cubism was coming up and this way of like space time and how actually in the way like artists were grappling with what like that kind of aspect of theoretical reality and that he was inspired by that. And actually I think that's kind of like, I don't know, I quite enjoyed that elements of it. And I think just those visuals of like what, what elements would look like, what reactions would look like. I thought that kind of added that kind of 
very again this kind of playing with gods playing playing with like godlike things elements of it but um i think balancing that with the grounded down-to-earth stuff which felt like very much like you know like legal drama let's get some fat that sort of intrigue that sort of kinetic pace it, it didn't feel like a three-hour movie to me i get the impression hannah that if you weren't a film critic you'd be a lawyer God no, seven years of study. I did actually. To be fair, there was one. I I, I did actually uh, want to be a lawyer briefly when I saw Legally Blonde. <laughs> it was True. a phase, and yeah, I feel like phase. everyone does. It, everyone. it just depends how long. Yeah, it's, exactly. Like, how long yeah. it lasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, liked a lot of what you were saying. What's there. your favorite legal? What's your favorite legal? Legal drama. Like go- it could be legal or government. Oh my god! I think mine has to be um um. What's the one? Uh, Aaron Sorkin, basically. A few good men. I really like 12 Angry Men. I've always really liked 12 Angry Men? Yeah. Yeah. Those men are angry. (laughs) 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 I was going to say A Few Good Men. Uh, What a film. Did you ever see like Runaway Jury? Rachel Weiss and John Cusack. Big fan of that. Oh, no. I want the truth. You can handle the truth. We could get into a quote off right now. Uh, But let's... Return to Oppenheimer. Uh, you mentioned IMAX a couple of times there, and this film is entirely shot in IMAX. You feel the scope of the Trinity test and the explosions and all of that absolutely comes through and it's overwhelming at times. I like the fact that the IMAX, because the entire film is shot with it, we get so many close-ups uh, of people's faces with the camera. And they capture everything. And Killian Murphy's performance in this, he's been in a number of known films. I think this is his sixth. This is the first time he's been the lead. And he absolutely eats it up. <laughs> it's it's so much poise. There's so much complexity. And, you know, actors all the time have to do this because they often shoot out of sequence. But he's playing Oppenheimer over four decades. He's in maybe 90% of the film to track his emotional state and to convey that for three hours is quite a feat. Um, what did you think of Killian Murphy? And will we be talking about him in the award season in the next few months? Who knows if award season is happening? So I'm no, concerned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That's a very laughs> but I thought he was fantastic. And we kind of already said that Oppenheimer was such a frustrating guy mm. because he he was he like if you read descriptions of him he was like incredibly charismatic but kind of arrogant he loved to really put people in their place um and yeah and he had this this sense that he was like so detached from the he's the responsibility of his own actions and i like that nolan kind of tries to expand that beyond just the making of the bomb so it's like in his relationship with women and his relationship mm-hmm. with like his brother that there's a sense that he he just has no sense that his like actions have consequences mm. um and and so i think that's quite a tricky it's quite a tricky part to do and for not to to not feel like over the top and really like mm-hmm. bombastic which mm-hmm. is the robert downey jr role right like it would have not worked at all if he was like too charismatic and too like hey i'm oppenheimer so i like that killian murphy just like dialed it a hundred percent down and he's so still in every scene and yet you still get the sense of like yeah if this guy told me to do something i'd probably do it 
because he has a presence. So I think that's that's the kind of like magical thing about his performance. Mm. And he's he gives good face. Not many people. Great face. He gives good face. Not many actors have the ability to uh, articulate so much with just like their eyes or just the the kind of like the way that they shape their mouth and stuff. You kind of get. Because again, Oppenheimer was someone who was not a very revealing person about how he felt about certain situations. He could be very direct, but also just withhold so much. And I think that's, you know, as much as you've got these, like, you know, based on like the biography, that very detailed biography and stuff, Killian Murphy is having to discover, like, work out how this person would feel and, like, what's going on without the words. And I think that's what's really good about his performance. Like, yeah, it's hard, like... It's really hard not to have... Uh, you know what? It's interesting. Like, there's moments where I did have, like, empathy for him, but I could also have this, like, very... This distance, like, no, dude. You're still... <laughs> you still worked very hard to create something that, you know... Again, that great power comes great responsibility. And I just don't think... I think... You know, I think it was uh, uh, ignorance. Not even, like... I think it was blind, naivety. like, chosen. Ign- no, it's not even naivety, because I don't think he was naive to the consequences of what would happen you're working for the government to make a bomb you know they're gonna fucking use it um and like that thing i just don't think the, the reason why i use that word is because i think there's a line in the film that he thinks the usage of the bomb will help prevent war for all time because nobody wants to sincere and and, and and that's naive uh, but I, I I personally I think you know, that's what the film's trying to tell us mm. I just don't believe that someone of that intellect understanding mm. who's working with the bureaucracy and government system could honestly believe that was the case like personally I just I just don't yeah I don't I, I think that's what of course that's what I want to try to say and that's the like that's the get out of jail they're giving him free card saying oh, you know, he just wanted to, he thought, but I think anyone who believes that building weapons secures peace is choosing, is choosing to be, yeah. do you know what I mean? And also I'm sorry, that's just insane. Well, no, no, I, 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 think... I just say it's starting to feel very Iron Man, that line. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's what's interesting that I, like, you know, Robert Downey Jr., but this is what it is about. It's like, yeah. you cannot, anyone who believes that they get into weapons to, weapon making to secure peace like that has never been the fucking case like and that's the most like you know typical like i find that just like an offensive thing to believe like that philosophy that they feel like they that philosophy can never be like that's a that's a it's just it how's the word for it it's just no it's just like it's on um how, when something can't go together, it's like incompatible. Incompatible. It's incompatible. You cannot be a weapons maker and believe that weapons is gonna secure peace. Like I, I that's like incompatible with that. Like, this film, because I think like there is when I've heard people talk about Oppenheimer before this film came out, I think there's a tendency to think of him as this naive scientist yeah. who just wanted to Yeah, know, and that's what I vision. take umbrage with. He had no idea what he was doing and he he did. He fully supported them dropping, the, at least publicly. Yeah. He was like, I totally support dropping that. Well, he wanted them to drop one bomb. He didn't think the second one should have been dropped. That was more true. And also apparently they, apparently I saw something where he wanted to, Actually, the plan was to drop it on like a third world country to test it. 
But they also, even the testing that they do yeah. in New Mexico, like someone said, like I saw someone tweet about like my mother got cancer because of like the, and that's, that's what I mean about this thing. It's like, he was like, oh, let's use Los Alamos. And I think there's a whole thing in the film, sorry, but like, there's a whole thing I feel about his brother, getting his brother in to help work out where's the best place to do it. And it's like, he didn't do a fucking good job. <laughs> to like whereabouts in the desert that's gonna have yeah. the least impact it's like you didn't do a very good job and i think that's what i mean about this this film it it's obviously very specific to the book which obviously has like you know the biopic and stuff and i get what no one's trying to do but i also feel like this is a very specific um angle perspective that it wants you to feel about this person and they've kind of you know shut like I, I love this is a great film i love this film but as i said I said when i tweeted about it, i was like it's like, you know, it's nearly at zero how much I didn't like about it. But like that one of the things is that it kind of shaved off some of the kind of darker elements that would actually that it kind of that showed that, you know, that would make him look even worse. Yeah, because you know? when I was reading up about it, I was, it's like it only gets worse if you go and if you like, look at. Yeah, like this is a sanitized version status. of and it's the, still and the like, impact that he it still does not. I it, I think I do appreciate that the film I think does try really hard to communicate that yeah he he was not some innocent genius at all and he was quite a as we said frustrating human yeah. but you're right it's I think it's just because it's such a tricky topic because I think especially Americans have such a reluctance to talk about this and such a reluctance to take responsibility, which is for such a profoundly evil thing that happened. And I remember there was some sort of World War Two movie. I remember getting so furious because they were doing it like a recap of the end of the war and they just didn't mention it. Like that's how much in denial Americans are about what they did, what we did. I'm, <laughs> I'm not excluding myself. Mm. Um, so I that's why the thing where I'm like, I'm so appreciative of this movie coming out because I think people are going to start to understand. But at the same time, like, I would love for someone now to come in. Maybe a Japanese... I mean, there have been great Japanese films about... But what maybe, ones have you seen? What was what? Oh, my God. I, yeah, there was this Japanese anime film I saw a few years ago and they, like, showed the bomb going off and it was so horrifying, but it was so, like fuck like you really got an understanding of how terrifying it would have been to be there but anyway sorry i can't remember but <laughs> oh well, i'll have a, I'll have a <laughs> i wanted to i'm very interested to have this next part of the conversation actually because i wanted to ask the two women of the pod <laughs> okay this is also part of the conversation. <laughs> are we talking about the wee female characters <laughs> yes we are okay yeah because uh, this is another re- part of it where i was like uh nolan <laughs> Okay, well, that's interesting because I think with Emily Blunt especially, that's probably one of, if not the best female character that Christopher Nolan has written, in my opinion. I thought she was fantastic. And the second watch for me really benefited what I thought about the character because the first time I watched it, I was like, she's very good. She doesn't really come into her own until the final act. And by the way, I think the final hour of this is better than the first two hours, and the first two hours are pretty damn good. <laughs> uh, I liked it that much, and that there's a one particular scene that she has, which is incredible. But on the second watch, I realized that there's a number of powerful scenes featuring Emily Blunt's character all the way through that I really enjoyed. Obviously, Florence Pugh is the other side of that equation. As somebody who's a fan of that actress, I would have loved to have seen more of her, but would 
did the film need more of that character specifically? I'm unsure about that. Um, and the scenes of which she does have, I think she does a very good job on. Um, I'm very intrigued to get what you think about these characters uh, as a woman of the pod and uh, maybe try and change my mind because Hannah clearly <laughs> has issues with a couple of them. Uh, do you want to go first, Hannah, or do you want to leave it to Kamise? I have to say I didn't have very strong feelings about it because it's it's one of those things. I've seen other Nolan movies. I was not <laughs> expecting much. <laughs> um, I do think Emily Blunt's character was a little like... It's just the fact that very early on after she introduced, she did that classical cinema thing of throwing the glass because she's drunk mm. and I'm an alcoholic wife and Oppenheimer, you should do the thing and I'm mad at you. <laughs> she's yeah. she being the alcoholic wife yeah. <laughs> who's pestering the man. But I, you know, I do think the writing's a little bit more complex than that. The performances are very good. And at the same time, like, this is, it's not a story where I particularly want women to be represented. <laughs> I'm not like, more women in the story about really evil things. Um, I, they weren't, there were women at Los Alamos. I mean, they do represent that, which I appreciated, but um, I I didn't really need more, but also wasn't that like impressed by it. I don't know. I have a very lackluster answer for this. I'm sorry. I just felt with the specific, I think that, you know, again, I do agree with you. Like, what can I say? Like the fact is this is the film's called Oppenheimer. You know, there's about a million people to like cater to tell this story. And I'm, I didn't expect like the, the, the wife, to do something beyond being at the other end of a phone call, you know, that classic kind of female trope of like, is he coming home from war? Is he coming home from space? Is he coming home from Los Alamos? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Like, it was the Florence Pugh characterization of this gene. It was like the most reductive, over-sexualized um, characterization that just felt so um, at odds with the film. <laughs> like... It, like, in the way she's basically naked most of the time that you see her. She's kind of, she is kind of like in Marion Cotillard in Inception, like this kind of very like, mm. and I just felt, oh God, you have not given enough time to this woman to expand her from being beyond this kind of like crazy nymph maniac. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Sexy communist. Yeah, this sexy. Coming it was just like, I'm so, I, did, I just feel like I was watching a film and, and I was reading something about like, um, how it's you know I haven't read the American Prometheus book, but I was reading an interview where like apparently it was like very specifically, like so much of it is taken even from the way that like how he liked to have his like man like what is it martinis with like lime and salt around the rim or whatever. And I was like, mm. <laughs> was there a bit in it where Gene and Oppenheimer had sex while he was reciting Sanskrit? Like, was that? Because that was a weird place to put that. Quote. I, I was next to I was sat next to Lillian Crawford, oh, yeah. the, the Lillian oh, Crawford, great Lillian. film critic, and she we just looked at each other, just burst out laughing. And this is what I mean. It's like who asked for this? Who needs this? Like I'm all for sex scenes. Like I am not like you know a person who feels like you should have. But it just felt like what is the purpose of this scene? Like what is the purpose of it? You know, and I get it. And also, like, I feel like there was a later version, I'm not going to spoil it, but like, there was a later use of a sexual moment that felt like you didn't need this bit to make that point. If I was Florence, I mean, look, good for Florence Pugh if she was happy with, to take that role, but, like, 
I would, if it was me, I'd be like, I'm not going to be in this film to do that role. That's just like so reductive for me. Yeah. Like I, I was kind of trying to, I was trying to understand the point he was making by having, because I think like she was meant to represent his sex life, but it's quite reductive when you use a human person to represent like an idea of sex. And also like, he also, it's the idea, he, Kitty as a character as well, they were having a, an affair. Like, it just felt, you know what I mean? I don't know. I just, I just, I just, it just felt jarring to me. And, you know, I know you say you shouldn't expect much from Nolan, but I also feel like if we're going to call this guy a master, like say he's a master of cinema, a master of screenwriting, well, I don't think you can do call him that if you can't write female characters. So I love him, but I also recognize that, you know, he is not the grand auteur, I think. Because I think the idea that you can't write women shows a kind of, a real blind spot and I think it says a lot about our society and our world where we kind of accept that we say oh well you know okay interesting um I know we've gone along on this there's just two more things I want to focus on which is the supporting characters because we have to give Clarice time to get her old and Ellen like on um but <laughs> for me uh Robert Downey Jr who I've been a fan of for a long time obviously I love his work in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think he's exercising muscles here that he hasn't... What do you like him outside of Marvel? What's your favourite films of his outside of Marvel? I really like the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes films. I think he's a fantastic uh, Sherlock. What's uh, your favourite film of his outside of franchise films? Probably Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Not Dr. Doolittle, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, probably Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. How about you? I kind of like that one. What's the one with Marissa Tomei? Like that. Do you remember that Lesson Zero film that he was in as well? Was yeah, he in um, Zodiac he as well? Cool? He's also... Oh, you know what? Actually, I, I have to say Natural Born Killers. Natural Born Killers, that's my favourite, I think. Was, he uh, was great. it just called Chaplin? Uh, he was in that, and he was also in... He's been in yeah. quite a few. The Singing Detective, remember? He was in that, but I was a remake. I liked that, yeah. 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 Was he in Zodiac as well? Yeah, he was, yeah. yeah. Well, but I think Natural Born Killers, I think that's what I like. I like that one because that's such a fucking insane film, and I love... It's That was a story by Quentin Tarantino, that one. It's great if you haven't seen that. Because I think that's the thing. Like, I feel like Robert Downey Jr., everyone thinks of him as these, like, characters. And, of course, like, of course, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But, like, if you actually look broader in his actual catalogue, he has so much more range um, than what these franchise things. And, I yeah, I think he's really... I did, I, I did, I, I did really enjoy him in this, for sure. Yeah. I will say, though, talking about internet things that annoy you, an internet thing that has slightly frustrated me is how people have been so eager to cheapen his work in the MCU while lauding his work in this. And as somebody who really loves his work in the MCU, which I don't think is limited to wisecracking, which is what I've also seen online, you don't need to denigrate one to lift up another. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Mm. Um, but yeah, he's good in this. Yeah, I, I did see some late stage Tony Stark jump out in a Strauss performance. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know what, well, you know, because, you know, I I think the conflict between Tony Stark and Captain America, Steve Rogers, you know, and even when they kind of are post, post blip, snap, whatever they want to call it, there was definitely like a tension there. And I think you see that that's the tension that's play with Oppie, Oppie and Strauss in this, which is really interesting. Um, I also like the moments where you see, again, when you see the perspective, like, of course, it's from... Oppenheimers, two of the things are from Oppenheimers, but one of them is Strauss. And like, right. I love sometimes the way that 
there's a certain scene where you see it from how Strauss is trying to regale it. Mm -hmm. Like say, oh, this is how I felt in this moment. And then you realize, oh no, this is actually what went down. And you see like the difference in performance and like having those different scenes. I really quite enjoy that kind of the unreliable narrator of it all as well. Mm -hmm. very, very the Rashomon true. effect. <laughs> It felt, especially the way in which Strauss's character arc resolves, it felt, felt very, very human. And I like that. Uh, the time has come, ladies and gentlemen, for Clarice to talk about Alden Ehrenreich. Clarice, well, I've kind the floor of... is yours. I've kind of already said my bit. He's in the movie. He's got lines. <laughs> he doesn't, got. I mean, his character's mostly there to ask Robert Downey Jr. questions, so it's not really a difficult role for him. Mm, mm. <laughs> I, I will say what, what I liked about both his and Matt Damon's performance, obviously, this is a very dark and heavy film, but I feel like they inject a bit of a levity uh, through their delivery of lines and also their facial reactions at various points. And especially in a film like this, which is so dark and heavy, uh, I'll take any bit of uh, humor I can get. And I think uh, they, they did a good job of that. Uh, last thing I want to sort of get into is the craft of it all. Um, I've not. Can I it. also? Can I say my favorite non? No, non no, you thing. cannot, Hannah. Um, I want to shout out <laughs> Josh Hartnett. Yes, Josh Hartnett, man, I love him so much. He's so good in this, and I also am really enjoying this kind of like resurgence he's having mm -hmm. because he was the guy. He was like the heartthrob for me, like the faculty. Like Forty Days, Forty Nights, but also Lucky Number Eleven is like one of the best I really movies like that ever. I really like, like I don't even film. understand how we don't talk about it. it's like one of the greats. I loved him. I even liked him in Pearl Harbor. I love that he's gone from <laughs> Pearl Harbor soldier Danny in Pearl Harbor to um to now scientist. I and we it. also have the same favorite band. I mean, he's a huge Interpol fan. Oh. He was in a Perfume match. You know they were doing. It, did you go see that Interpol was doing Somerset House recently? They came to Brighton, but it was at the Brighton Dome, which is such a weird venue for them. And I felt it made me feel too old buying tickets because <laughs> I was like. This is why aren't they at Alexandra Palace, which is where I used to go see them. This feels think, very uncool. I'm gonna wait for them to become cool again, and then I'll return to the flock. I think I Josh Hartnett was one of those what if guys because if memory serves, he got offered Batman, Christopher Nolan's Batman, and he he turned it down or couldn't do it. I can't remember. Um, but in an alternate universe, he's a much bigger star than what he currently is. But I I, I loved him uh, in this as well. I thought he was great. Um, but yeah, I wanted to talk about the craft. The score by Ludwig is sensational. I'd say mm. the only score for a Nolan movie that I think is better than what he does here is Hans Zimmer's score for Inception, which is all time. Um, but what Ludwig does here is such a crucial component in so many ways, especially as it pertains to putting us in Oppenheimer's headspace. The score which is very violin-led for Oppenheimer's theme, um, along with the visuals that I think, Hannah, you were mentioning earlier, the atom splitting, the fluorescent lights mashing together. There's a scene early on which has all of those elements which just took my breath away. So the craft on that level is incredible. Obviously, we mentioned the IMAX camera, Hoyt van Hoytemer, the cinematographer, one of the best working today. He's doing his thing. The... Uh, production design by Ruth de Jong is incredible. Oh, there's another thing I was gonna. Oh, the visual the the visual effects supervisor Andrew Jackson. All of these guys are working on the top of their game to help not only put you in Oppenheimer's headspace, but also to reenact uh, the explosions. Like the the, the build-up and the actual Trinity test is incredible. 
in this film. <laughs> so is there yeah. anything on the craft level that really stuck out to you? Stuck out, stuck out, stuck out, stuck out. I think the editing, I think the editing was, was really yes. good. Yes, oh, that was the other one thing I was going to mention. The editing by Jennifer Lane. Um, it's fantastic. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so I thought the editing was really sharp. Um, I think it really had, it was really, um, I don't know. What I really liked about this film is that it felt kind of, you know, if we're going to go in musical terms, it felt like an opera, like you have these, the highs and ebbs and flows, the kind of big crescendos, but then also kind of moments of, um, of peace. And I think the editing reflected that and also the kind of like, I suppose, certain claustrophobic moments that you kind of feel like, oh, you're in his Hoppenheimer's head, but also in Strauss's head. And then I think that was really brilliantly rendered and it had this real kinetic kind of movement and pace and you really got it. Um, I say the hair makeup was really good. I think I would say like really, yeah. really subtle. Some not of the over- aging stuff I thought. Like, yeah, that's right? what I thought. I thought the aging of it was really well oh, done. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's what I mean. The hair and makeup, oh. like how they, how, like seeing Oppie go from being at Cambridge and then yes, going to like older. Really good. Yeah. I think other people's makeup and sort of looked yeah. a bit strange to me, but um, it's very minor. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought it was really good. And just on the other things of like, you know, again, what I just, a final thing to, to know on what it includes it, what it doesn't do. Mm. I think, it, you know, again, it's like that sort of, I think so often these filmmakers do these things and they think if they just do one line, that's enough. And it's again, what you were saying about, it really, really, like, having a Japanese perspective on it would have been interesting, you know, or even on this, like, the fact that, you know, there's a line where it's like, oh, yeah, where they're going to do, <clears throat> they're going to shoot, they're going to do this, build this whole, like, Los Alamos, like, weapons thingy in the supposedly, like, the desert, you know, in New Mexico. And there's a line where he says, oh, uh, what was here? Was, oh, it's just like this and, like, Indian burial grounds. And it's like, okay, that's it. It's like, there's an, we're talking about like accountability of like this guy who felt guilty. I felt like you could have also kind of put in a bit of like the Native American perspective of like, wasn't there a battle? Wasn't there a bit of a fight that he also basically just didn't give a shit about? I don't know. I think, I know it is. I just feel like it's a three hour film. The things that you and choose are not And he did a lot in. of fucked up shit. So yeah. it's like hard to, it's hard to pass like, what do you actually include? Yeah. Like, there's so much. It's not just the central evil. There's like ripping. Yeah, that's evil. what I mean. And I think I get what you're doing, but it was also like I felt you could have. There could have been something there. I think it would have been. It would have behooved them just to kind of actually acknowledge that in a far more meaningful way. And I'm not saying the whole film has to be about that, but you know, if you're gonna have a scene, fucking, <laughs> like you have sex scenes in it, <laughs> which feels kind of somewhat superfluous to the story. You could have had those scenes without having you know showing that just kind of pick it's just you know i get it's his vision oh, but i get those movies green because that's what i always yeah. think when i watch stuff like oppenheimer it's like i don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with telling it so much in his perspective mm-hmm. but it makes me think it's a shame that we don't have an environment in which filmmakers wanting to explore like like an american japanese filmmaker wanting to explore the japanese side of it or yeah, or, yeah. A, or a Hispanic filmmaker wanting to to look at what happened to the land. Like those are all incredible stories that Hollywood will never finance because they, and that has nothing to do with Christopher Nolan. That's like very no, much it's, it's not, it's not. But, but, I, but I think it always season, impacts it? our reception of yeah. films like Oppenheimer. Yeah, exactly. So. Oh, I could talk to you about this film for another hour, uh, but we've gone long on it, so let's wrap it up there. It's time for our screen stream or skip recommendations on Oppenheimer, Oppie, how the fuck? 
screen. Police. Screen. And when people kept saying Oppie before, I was like, stop saying that. It's really rude, like weird. But they actually called him Oppie. So yeah. <laughs> I take that back. Because <laughs> we kept saying it in the group chat. I was like, stop it. It's fucking weird. <laughs> but I, yeah, they did. They did just call him Oppie. Oh, yeah, but they did because they knew him. We don't have that. We don't know him like that. Yeah. Like yeah. You refer to him as J. Robert Oppenheimer, Clarice. Gosh, so informal. <laughs> uh, it's a scream for me as well. Uh, from a film in which uh, its lead character contemplates death to another film in which its lead character contemplates death. We're talking about Barbie. Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. You can find me under the lights, diamonds under my eyes. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. And so is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Yeah. You guys ever think about dying? I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. Life in plastic. It's fantastic. You can brush my hair, Mm-mm. undress me everywhere. Oh, do that. Imagination, <laughs> life is your creation. Come this on, Bobby. So she's full of the Ken. All these puppies are hot. I can't remember the new song. Oh, is that I the new it. version? Oh, of I it. love it. <laughs> Barbie and Ken are having the time of their lives in the colourful and seemingly perfect world of Barbie land. However, when they get a chance to go to the real world, they soon discover the joys and perils of living among humans. Directed by Greta Gerwig, with a script written by Gerwig and Noah Bombach, it stars Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, American Ferreira, Kate McKinnon, Issa Rae, Rhea Perlman, Will Ferrell, Simu Liu, Shuti Gatwa, Kingsley Benadir... <laughs> lots of people lots of Brits because they shot a lot of it in London yeah um, okay so let's let's I suppose let's like start with the, the kind of the the elephant in the room not really because it's fundamentally based on a toy it is a capitalist consumerist toy product that we're using um so I suppose Clarice comes to you first hmm. um how I suppose when you have that in mind how much would you say that Gerwig has been able to have her own voice shine through and be able to tell a story that kind of is more than just a superficial joyride of girl boss seeking love, success and happiness? So this is the thing. I feel like when you're making a movie about a toy <laughs> that's having so many different brand deals and like there's stuff in Primark, there's stuff in Zara, it's everywhere. Like there's, it's literally impossible to make a movie that is genuinely anti-capitalist or I would say genuinely feminist as well. Mm. Cause you just get wrapped up in contradictions. But what I found so, what I love so much about Barbie is that I feel like, Greta Gerwig and I guess Noah Baumbach as well in the screenwriting part were left alone a little bit by Warner Brothers and Mattel. They just said, go off. It was the pandemic and yeah. they just wrote off. They went off and wrote the script. And what they created and then what Greta filmed um, 
is so filled with contradictions and I love that. It's so honest about itself and like on an artistic level and it's all about the messiness of mm. being alive like in a capitalist world, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I sort of expected and also didn't expect. And that's the part of it that like I was so wowed yeah. by. Like it's just cool to have a movie that is self-aware in that level but also really vulnerable and honest but it's also a massive comedy and it's stupid mm. and fun like it, i don't know i loved it yeah what we i think everyone was trying to guess what the what the kind of premise of barbie was i think yeah. many of us thought it was going to be like ageism <laughs> like barbie. i think i thought it was gonna be like, oh what if it's about ageism i actually kind of guessed it right on some levels what when you were first thinking about I, I guess that it was going to be about the standards that women are held to versus men, which is yeah. sort of what the movie's about. Yeah, I thought it was. Just, I thought it was going to be like ageism and how like she was kind of like you know new, kind of the Toy Story bit of like out of date, you know that oh, sort of like thing. Buzz Lightyear. Yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. like discontinued sort of element. Um, Amon, when you went into the movie, how do you feel? Because it's interesting. I feel like people are calling this like a feminist masterpiece, but I don't even like people are really hanging on the feminism of it. But I'm like, I don't think it's trying to be as feminist as you think it is. I think it's actually less about I think it's for a female lens. Yes, but I think it's about humanity. For me, that's the biggest. It's about existence and what it means to be a human, what it means to live. Um, And I think I'm personally using a doll, which is an inanimate object. And like, what would happen if you actually made that? And I think that's why I love the Wings of Desire influence on it. Like, very clear to me. Um, Amon, how did you feel about it? I think you're 100% right. You took... <laughs> I had that sort of you just basically took everything I was about to say. Damn it! But yeah, you're right. Uh, it's about humanity. That is what I took from it. Um, and I liked how it started very goofy and silly. And then for both Ken and for especially Barbie, it sort of peeled back the layers, especially for Barbie as it pertains to, to the humanity of it all as she discovers sexism and the patriarchy in the real world. I thought that was very cleverly done. In terms of the expectations I had going into this, I didn't really know because I loved the vibe of the trailers, but they were not revealing for plot at all. So I was like, okay, I like the vibe. I like Greta. We'll see what we see. Um, mm. For the most part, two thumbs up. Yeah, I think what it's interesting because I, I, I mean, I, I love to talk about like the films that we recognized in, 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 the, in the not just kind of like the world building, but also thematic. I've said Wings of Desires. Like, I think of like, you know, obviously goes into real, like The Matrix. That's obviously a thing. Even like Tim Burton's um, Edward Scissorhands from the way that they build the Barbie land and then have like weird Barbie's house on the hill. That looks like a bit different. That reminded me of like yeah. the cra- the crazy Pee-wee's side. Pee-wee's big adventure. I know she cited that. <clears throat> oh, did she? Quite, it's quite Pee-wee. It made me think the humor. Did Tim Burton have something to do with Pee-wee? Or did, was there something? Did I may get it wrong. It? Pee-wee Herman no. was he not in Edward? Yes, that's. I think that's what it is. Did he? Did he direct Pee-wee's big adventure? I'm. I'm having. I'm really tired today. <laughs> I can't remember. Did he do it? Can did you he explain to me? It? what Wings of Desire is, because you've mentioned it a couple of times, I haven't seen it. 
Okay, Wings of Desire oh, is a gosh. 1987 romantic fantasy <laughs> film. I love gets... that you've just got, it's like the Wikipedia entry. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like, I love this film. Because I've literally just had to write, I wrote, basically, I kind of, my, my Barbie column this week is about, like, the influence of Wings of Desire and how I saw that. But the idea, have you seen, I mean, you probably haven't seen it, but have you seen the, the Nicolas Cage movie, City of Angels? Yes. With Meg Ryan. Yeah. Okay, that is, a, that is an adaptation of Wing, Wings of Desire. Oh. So basically, it's about a okay. human... It's about an, an angels who watch over humanity and have some co- sort of influence on how they feel in distressing situations so they can hear everything. Mm-hmm. And then one of them falls in love with a human and then it's kind of like he ponders his immortality, whether he wants to, you know, what it means to live and be human. And then you kind of go on this journey and it's set in West Berlin. And like even like Nick Cave, what is it Nick Cave in The Bad Seeds? Like they basically, there's a bit in it where they're in the film. It's all, like, it's kind of like black and white. And the black and white bit is... Yeah, so anyway, it's this idea of, like, two planes of existence that are, like, emotionally connected and about, like, having the consciousness of humanity and what it means. And, you know, I think once you have that in mind, I'm sure now that you know that, you're like, oh, okay. I highly recommend watching it. I think it's on um, (laughs) BFI player. I love it. I think it's just one of the most beautiful films. It's so, like, soulful and just... And it, Peter Falk's in it, and he plays himself, and it's like, oh, it's so good. I love it. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I'm oh, that I, I highly recommend it. I love it. Just like say, Pee Wee's Big Adventure was like, <laughs> <Yeah. better than. laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Um, I suppose, yeah, I suppose, how did you, because even like, there's moments, even like Margot, like the fifth element, do you remember when like Lilu kind of like discovers? Yeah, but you know, when she kind of suddenly like discovers, she's like, brought to life and then she literally has to like brainwash like clockwork orange of like what humanity is and she's just like crying and like that every time Margot Robbie cried in this film I just felt like oh it's Lulu she's like she's getting absolutely flogged to death by fucking patriarchy and it's awful um so I suppose yeah I suppose how did you you know again it's it's Greta's doing her own thing but did you it seems there seems to be a clear affection homage and stuff to other films i mean was there anything that kind of jumped out to you that you thought was quite interesting i mean even the matrix stuff even in the um in the kind of corporate that thing but even when they're in there's a there's a scene when they're in the mattel headquarters and that reminded me of the matrix when he's trying to run away from agent smith well there's also looks like the it's like the playtime jack tetty yeah yeah so i'm on anything else you know i'm looking to end a few there Films that stood out to me. Clarice, well, one thinks. Well, I think the one thing that I was looking, I was looking through Greta Gerwig's list that I was like, oh, there's actually, this isn't on there, so I don't know if it's intentional. But what I loved about the movie as well was the sense of humour felt. It reminded me of all the 60s comedies I love because mm-hmm. I watch them a lot and no one ever seems to like them. <laughs> like they're not really that cool or trendy but they have such a campy goofy slapstick Mm. absurd sense of humor so stuff like i mean this one's more like how to succeed in business without really trying Mm. it's a mad mad i always forget the number of mads it's a mad 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 world (laughs) i love it's a mad 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 like that caper (laughs) yeah yeah that caper caper style of humor like totally disconnected from reality like everyone is so willing to make an absolute fool of themselves that's what i mean that everyone and maybe we can get into like the performances of it then because i do feel like i think it's really i suppose this is there's the performances and what they got and also i suppose one this is like maybe my slight criticism of like the balance of who got to do what. 
in it because, you know, people throwing themselves into performances, 100% the Kens, they had like, they were like, I am, they were so unselfconsciously like absolute buffoons. Yeah. Like, the Kennedy. The Kennedy was basically <laughs> saying, like, I am going to look, I, it's like, I'm going to, I was like, I'm gonna. What's that? What's that meme of like from from Sue from Glee? And it's like, I'm gonna, oh. <laughs> so I'm gonna deliver something so so toxically masculine, so toxic masculinity. <laughs> like it was just so like insanely insecurity. You just got it. All these people, all these guys, just willing to just totally take the piss out of themselves and not be serious. And I suppose the thing they did it so well. And obviously, we can talk about Ryan Gosling, but I did feel like sometimes they got so many more of the punchlines and that the Barbies were really the straight women where the Kens could be the, I suppose, the banana man, like the kind of, you know, the, the funny foil. I don't think the Barbies got as many opportunities, especially the ones who aren't like Margot or Weird Barbie. The other ones didn't get as much chance to kind of, you know, the fact that they get a music, Kens get a whole fucking music That's kind of a fight sequence and like the Barbies get a song, but they don't get to sing along to the song at the beginning. And I suppose that for me was like, I would love yeah. to, the Barbies could have been a, like the Barbies are silly as well. Yeah, like I thought you're you're right. It's like a little bit more on the 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 Kens or the goofy ones, but I do feel like like Issa Rae's the president Barbie. I thought was really funny, yeah. but I guess it's a different sense of humor. They the Barbies had more of the like. There's a line about Zack Snyder's Justice League. That yeah, that was really funny. One of the best jokes in the movie. That's a Barbie that delivers yeah. it. So I think they had more of the the pop culture reference, like the kind of the. They had, yeah, I suppose that's true. I think I suppose it gets into that thing about like because obviously that every single Barbie in this is gorgeous yes. and I think this idea of like pretty girls can't be funny and I think that's what do you know what I mean there's this kind of ex- do you know what I mean like Rosamund Pike said this a lot as well like she can't play comedy well because you're not allowed to be pretty and funny at the same time yeah. and I'm not saying it's intentionally done that but I think it's just falling in a way where like you know Emma Mackey and Alexandra Ships like I get they do kind of deadpan thing but I don't think they get as many of like the opportunities to be as kind of you know say something like Clueless like Clueless is perfect of like pretty women being fucking hilarious you know like Cher and I want maybe I wanted that sort of kind of like self like like meta sort of kind of stupid but I guess that's the thing is because like the funniest character in every movie is the dumb one and obviously it wouldn't make sense for the story for the Barbies to be idiots. No, but I think... I <laughs> but think you're but, kind of right. I but think Cher, it's like Dion, like, yeah, the yeah, and like Amber and stuff like that. Even like in Heathers, like Veronica, the Heathers are all funny in certain ways mm-hmm. but could be and I think I want it and even like dumb, silly ways. I don't know. Maybe that. And again, this is just like splitting hairs a bit. But I just noticed that I could look. Just give them a. You, I feel like they should have got the music. They should have got a musical, musical. number. <laughs> Amon. I as the accessory this week. Oh wow! <laughs> I've been. We'll let you have an opinion. <laughs> Thank you so much. So gracious of you. Um, I thought Kate McKinnon got some really great lines. Um, I enjoyed her. Oh, I, I said, yeah, you say that. Um, I think America Ferrara and her daughter, whose name escapes me right now, I thought they had a good dynamic. I enjoyed their, uh, uh, I enjoyed their relationship. But you mentioned the the ballad, the eighty style pop ballad. I would have liked the Barbies to have gotten one for themselves, but the one that we get is pretty fantastic. <laughs> Yeah. And I absolutely 
loved it. And I love how much Ryan Gosling just threw himself into that and everything else. Um, I've been humming and singing I'm Just Ken pretty much every day since I've seen, <laughs> since I saw the movie. Um, if we do get an Oscars, I have a hard time believing that anything I hear is going to top that for best song. Um, I'm very I, much looking I, forward to that performance. <laughs> me that too. Performance. Me too, Hannah. Um, but you know what's great about it? This is why it's very similar to like Lego Movie because Lego Movie had everything is awesome. Right, yeah. Everything is cool. And it's oh, like, no, and it's like... stuck in my head. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and, you know, he really, as I say, throws himself into this. He's very committed. And the fact that... <laughs> It's a plot for him, which basically boils down to he him discovering sexism and the patriarchy, and was still feeling some sympathy and empathy for him, at least to a degree. I think it's just as a testament to uh, how well written the characters and how great his performance is. It's, mm. it's really something. Yeah, because it's really interesting. I was talking to my friend Candice Fredericks yesterday about hey, this. Uh, uh, she's senior Huffington Post. Uh, Culture reporter at Huffington Post and she's right about Barbie so definitely check her out um, but just like how again even Barbie land it's not a feminist utopia it's actually a matriarchy like 100%. there's a and like it's like and I like like Kens are treated as second class citizens and I like the fact it kind of like it's like owning up to that and saying actually this is the problem with matriarchies and patriarchies is that there's always going to be someone who is subordinated and so actually it's saying but what I in a way what I like about the film is like it doesn't even attempt to fix it (laughs) it's not trying to say okay we're gonna have equality and it's like nah that's not how it works it's like we're gonna have this okay we'll do this you know and I think that's what I think is what I like about it it's not trying to use this doll to fix feminine, fix, you know, fix the real world or fix problems, etc. I mean, like, this is just the way it is. Yeah. And actually, not like, kind yes. of like, you know. It's that joke, because really funny, I, it, it's in like the opening two minutes. The first moment I knew, oh, fuck, we're in for something good, is when you have this opening narration by Helen Mirren. Yeah, very dryly delivered, how, it's like, great. Girls can be anything, and all these women are Barbie, and it's like, and all problems with, like, mm-hmm. unequal rights and yeah. sexism are solved, thanks yeah. to Barbie. And I feel like that's the moment you go, oh, this movie's gonna actually be about something, instead yeah. of, like, being this, like, studio-branded feminism, mm. where it's like, everything is great, and women are really empowered and awesome, mm. and it's just, like, yeah, it's just very honest about experience versus, yeah. I guess, political manifesto. Or yeah, ideas. it's expectation versus reality. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's not, it's, I suppose it, obviously, it's, it's like, it's hopeful of, like, hey, maybe it could change, but also accepting the fact that it is not the responsibility of one person mm-hmm. or, like, one doll to fix the world's ills. <laughs> yeah. I really liked how self-aware it was and how committed it was to the good, the bad, and the in-between of what Barbie has meant and continues to mean for girls and women of all ages. And that was really mm-hmm. great. And to your point, the amount of stuff Greta gets away with <laughs> as she is being self-aware to the world of Barbie, but also to Mattel. I'm just imagining her getting pages and pages of notes from many, many executives and just chucking them all in the bin because that is evidently what she must have done. It's really, it's really impressive. Like, I yeah. thought to myself, I was wondering, how did she get away with that? <laughs> like, multiple times watching this film. It's really, it's really impressive. Yeah. 
And I will have to say a lot of the kind of like emotional depth and kind of weighty themes and feelings that it grapples with uh, would not be delivered if it didn't have Margot Robbie in the role of Barbie because, you know, sure, she is a straight woman, but there are so many, and she's got great comic timing. And I think we saw with like when she's been Harley Quinn, you know, she's very good at, you know, doing complex characters. And I think what I really enjoy is how, not just how she becomes more, like the awareness, like the more she wakes up to humanity, like she goes through this transformation in the film and you feel it in every moment and you can see, you can track the, you can witness the kind of change from like the kind of cracks. It's like, you know, the glitch in the mate, but suddenly it's like, you know, the brightness and sadness. And then you suddenly see like a smile and it's like, oh no. And you, like her facial expressions, the way she carries her body. Even like, I would even say go down to like, the, the way she modulates her voice, it changes as she kind of goes on. And I think that's a really, it's, it's patient and it's subtle and it's like just so specific and detailed and so executed in such a really like very seamless manner of how I expect someone who is going through a real life awakening, like self-actualization of what's going on. It felt really believable that as much as this is obviously this amazingly bombastic amazing world that they've set up where it's irreverent and there's things that don't kind of make sense and there's kind of moments of just like ridiculousness like you really get the change from plastic to person well also i feel like i this it's like the makeup and hair even yeah i was so impressed with her through the movie i was like oh my god she looks like a human now and they changed i don't yeah even, even like the, she had wrinkles in the she i know it's yeah. like at first she didn't and then she got into the real world and so you saw like the not wrinkles but like you know the creases around her eyes yeah and stuff. she wasn't so airbrushed like there was something definitely going on with yeah how yeah they were doing her yeah. face or maybe even the lighting that was so smart yeah i thought it was really well done talking about class stuff the production design by sarah greenwood barbie land <laughs> wow I, I only just heard this by the way apparently the construction the, the the making of this film led to like a worldwide shortage of pink paint did you guys know this yeah i read about supposedly this. that's the pr talk i feel like that can't be true because there's a lot of pink paint in the world i think there was a shortage of pink paint at the particular paint company they were sourcing their paint from that i will believe but still barbie land looked absolutely incredible like a childhood dream come to life which is actually which is exactly mm. what that should look like and the introductory sequence, that first 15, 20 minutes, I thought was, I thought, I thought they did a really good job with that. So, mm. yeah, I expect her to be in the awards conversation, should there be an awards conversation this year. And the details were so funny. The one that really made me chuckle is when an ambulance turns up and it's like, remember you had the Barbie sets were always mm. like, would fold out. Yeah. <laughs> so the ambulance like folds out into a medical center. And I was like, that is so funny. Yeah. It's so, there's so many little 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 touches of just oh remember that these barbies are being played with so yeah. it's like how would the barbie be played with yeah so like, she doesn't take the steps and I think, but there's so many things yeah like she really i was really because when i asked her i was like did you like she create this like set of rules for how this work this world would work like apparently there was like seven suns so that everyone had good lighting like there's no elements but there's only wind if someone's hair needs to blow. You know, things like that. You know, that was really well done. And also, you know, you can kind of compare it to like, I mean, if you've been, if you're a Barbie, like, you know, fan, you could watch this movie in the same way that you could watch Spider-Man, you know, across the universe in the sense of like, oh my God, there's that Barbie. There's this Ken. Yeah. So that you could do that. Um, and just, I and, and I suppose, <laughs> and I suppose there's this one thing, again, just go back to like, I felt like a little bit of an imbalance, like, 
having Midge and Alan, I think again that kind of showed to me like Midge doesn't say one word, but Alan gets to gets to have a whole sequence. And I think sometimes that for me was like, oh, I wanted oh, like I liked Alan though. I think it would be I too loved Alan. to talk no, about it, I but I really liked the way Alan was used because yeah. it was a way of not making it so much of a like a gender bind. It's more yeah. about power and structure. No, I, I don't want to totally get totally agree. But I think it's that thing. It's like I know what you're saying about like. America Ferreira's character Gloria and her daughter and like that but I feel like I just want I think I just wanted more hijinks from the Barbies not from Barbie the Barbie 2 let's go yeah. <laughs> what do you say Barbie 2 I don't want another Barbie movie oh yeah I actually don't I absolutely do not want another one I know they're gonna try and do it but I just feel like Ooh, no no me. yeah why why I don't we don't need a franchise and I think actually you know, if it's not about selling toys, then Mattel shouldn't be making another Barbie movie. Yeah. Well, you don't think you can with that story that you told. But how are you going to do it? Greta's not going to come back unless you get, like, it's just done and it's, uh, like, yeah. I just don't think anyone who comes to do Barbie 2, I just feel like, okay, you're that's selling out. <laughs> I would watch a movie about my favourite childhood, Barbie, Chili and Barbie, because she wasn't in the movie. I was like, where is she? Can I just say... I know you mentioned Ryan Gosling, but I just, I've always loved his physical comedy. Yeah. And there's just him walking down the street in the cowboy shirt and, and the way he's like, <laughs> or fake horse. the way he's like swishing the <laughs> yeah. tassels. Like, he's he, so good. He's, he has such, and I saw a clip of him when he was a kid playing a hamster on a, yeah, one of that sketch. Even when he was a kid, he had incredible physical comedy, comedy timing. Yeah, like, exactly. A born yeah. genius. And I think as well, like, he know like, things that you just wouldn't expect that I just don't even think were written into the script. I think it was just his, how he wanted to do it. Yeah. And I could see that he's got a very spatial awareness, knows what looks good for the camera, knows what will hit, and knows, like, yeah, like you said, the timing, the intonation, like, when... Yeah, it's just, like, there is such a, I don't know, there's such a specificity and such a, like, a real, like, I don't know, he's just got such a good comedy muscle that I love to see it flex. And that was a double entendre. It was an entendre that was double. Anyway. Uh, let's let's wrap this up, because literally, this is, like, the longest podcast, and this is going to be as long as Oppenheimer. Um, uh, screen, stream, or skip. Uh, Amon. This is, in a word, sublime! Uh, so it's a screen for me. <laughs> Clarice? Um, screen. And it's a screen from me. But before we go on to our next film, I have to ask the Barbenheimer question. How do you watch it? Oppenheimer, then Barbie? Barbie, then Oppenheimer? See, I, we, do we have to do it in the same day? Am I allowed to break the rules? There are literally no rules <laughs> to how Oppenheimer works. Uh, Barbenheimer works. Literally, there are no rules. You can do what the fuck you want. I would say, and I think, actually, I think I might have stolen Tom Cruise's answer because he, he, I think he said something along these lines. But I think Oppenheimer, well, this is Sunday, but Oppenheimer would be a Friday night, go out for dinner, go see the movie. and Is this what Tom really, Cruise said? He's... Well, not to, he said something about doing it different days, I think, mm. but then have a very long conversation on your like trip home discussing the themes of it. And then I think the next day you get mimosas and brunch and then you go see Barbie and then you have a really fun weekend. 
That's what that's my Barbie, Barbenheimer. Mm, that's interesting. I would I would say I saw Oppenheimer in the morning and then Barbie that evening. Okay. And I would actually say seeing and also I don't I know Oppenheimer's weighty, but I also don't feel like it's like I didn't feel crazy depressed about it because I think maybe I'm just a cynical, pessimistic person that just expects the world to like we're mutually it was really funny to me that no one said mutually assured destruction in that film. But anyway, so I was just like, maybe do that at like a, a maybe like the morning. You come at maybe like I don't know. Then have like or have it, see in the afternoon, then have dinner and talk about it. Have your little intellectual t- chat mm. while you have some drinks on your dinner. And then you're like, cool, let's uh, let's have dessert. And then Barbie, Barbie, which also gets into like existentialism, mm-hmm. but in a more poppy way with a great killer soundtrack. Yeah, because Barbie was the one that made me cry, not Oppenheimer. Yeah, and then go go <laughs> find <laughs> somewhere that's doing a pop night and go out and have a little dance the night away. I want to get invited to both of your Barbenheimers and go to and attend each one of them and have a great time with both of you, and it'll be fantastic. I, I think I'm with more Clarice in that. Let's do it on separate days, and let's get the full impact of both in terms of how they made you feel in terms of the discussion that will follow it. Because I feel like if you were to do them on the same day, because your focus will switch you're not going to get the full impact of what each film gives you. So Well, I did, and I saw them on the same lot. day. <laughs> so, anyway. But you know what? The biggest thing is go to the cinema. Yes. Have fun. Mm. Or, okay. Well, or or <laughs> you, should go, you should go on Netflix. That's what I'd say. Well, I was Can I do say, my link? <laughs> there might be a movie that I think would actually fit very well in the middle. Because yeah. I think you should maybe do Oppenheimer the movie maybe we're going to talk about and then Barbie because it transitions tonally quite well. Okay, so I won't do my link. Here's Sorry. a trailer for Dave Clone Tyrone. Slick, come on. Don't make your spider senses tingle. What kind of shit is this? Don't let the back door hit you. We gotta, we gotta go. When you look at me, I know I'm in double trouble tonight. Does everyone remember this song? It's from a movie. And maybe one of the stars was in Bali. It's from Eurovision. It's a song from Eurovision. Eurovision. Who was in Eurovision? Who's in Barbie in Eurovision? Will Ferrell. Oh, yeah. Sorry, the movie. Eurovision Song Contest. Yes. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Never mind. I thought that was going to be a fun fun reference because it's about double cloning never mind this is they clone tyrone a series of eerie events thrust an unlikely trio onto the trail of a nefarious government conspiracy in this pulpy mystery caper directed by jewel taylor in his feature film directorial debut from a screenplay by taylor and tony rentenmayer they clone tyrone stars john boyega tayona paris and jamie fox uh david allen greer and Kiefer Sutherland's in this. I know. Where's Kiefer Sutherland been? It took me like a few seconds to clock it was him because I just don't, I don't, oh, didn't no. expect him to be in this. <laughs> that's, that's, that's Jack Bauer. <laughs> I did a full double take. Like, what? <laughs> um, 24 was so... the first series I ever binged. Really? Oh, yeah. I binged like seven seasons in a week. Um, it was intense. I'm as Grey's Anatomy. 
How many seasons? Like seven. I did it over like when I was doing my masters. I did it over my Christmas break. It was also a very depressive time. So that's why I didn't leave, really leave my house. I don't know. The <laughs> first thing I, I probably would have been like the either the American Office or Parks and Recreation because mm. uh, that's really the only shows I ever bitch. Mm. What, <laughs> what did you do your masters in, uh, Hannah? I love how this person's read my book and yet. Uh, broadcast journalism. I can't remember everything in the book. It was a very <laughs> dense, interesting book. I love. I love how you went dense, interesting. Just put that in, just in case. No, yeah. no, no. I, I didn't mean. <laughs> Strong female character available everywhere. I meant dense in that there was a lot to take in. Not that it's silly. <laughs> I meant dense in that form. Did that not come to? I'm sorry. There's a strong female character in this movie. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to segue. Good segue. Good segue. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, the place I want to start and the thing I, I didn't really know much about this going in. I knew John Boyega was in it. That's it. <laughs> um, I was I was surprised and I really liked the the sort of concept of the dystopia in this because it's sort of very realistic but also a little bit like everyone's in like a black exploitation film like yeah, very yeah, 70s i loved all the outfits um i mean Amon, what did you think just starting off of this world that's been created because i thought it was quite it was quite different i loved it i thought the setting was great i loved that we're getting the sort of 1970s cars uh which were really really cool and looked very ostentatious i loved the entire wardrobe of Jamie Foxx's character, slick with the pink shirt. It's just great. All the fur. I need it in my wardrobe and I need it now. Um, so that was great. Um, and yeah, the, the real world sort of references, I think, meshed really, really well. And then I feel like there's a mix of stuff on many different levels because the score is very black exploitation-y, but then you got the soundtrack, which features people like Erica Badu. That mix of stuff, which goes right down to the cellular level, given how many genres this film is also playing in, it's really, they, they've they mixed it and blended it very well. It, it, it was working for me. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's like, there's sort of an immediate comparison because it does feel like there's a new genre kind of coming about of black filmmakers, like, creating these sort of sci-fi metaphors for real-life exploitation. Um, And, like, this is very different from Get Out and Sorry to Bother You. There's probably other ones that I'm not thinking about right now. (laughs) But, Hannah, I wanted to ask about more the thematic side of it and the... Because I kind of don't want to talk too much about the storyline, but it's basically a movie where there's uh, the conspiracy they reveal is like very high concept sci-fi, mm. but it's obviously a metaphor for real life things that happen. Did you think that side of it? Yeah, worked? because it's kind of like playing with space. So it's real Afrofuturism here, where it's like we're going to take speculative fiction and these narratives and like position it from a specific marginalized identity, which is obviously black point of view. And you know, it, you could compare this also to something like Logan Run or Logan's Run or like uh, Brave New World or things like that, where it's kind of like again, it's this kind of core. Kind of, again, not to try and get into it, but like corporations and how we have this one idea, and actually we don't really have much control and feeding into like the kind of maintaining a social order. Um, I thought, but again, using black exploitation, which if you think about like you know, I love the fact that you've got 
like uh, Yo-Yo, which is Tayona Paris playing like a, you know, Pam Greer sort of Foxy Brown kind of character. Uh, Jamie Foxx doing like the sort of, you know, super fly kind of guy where it's like, I'm going to take these tropes from that point of cinema. And a lot of what those, those, those films are about were about like kind of black people defending their community from white people the kind of like you know the government bureaucracy and like that sort of thing and I think that was what was really enjoyable and using those tropes and repurposing them but also like as you said you know Boots Riley is a really good comparative example because it's like this sort of like just like heightened world where it's like you recognize it but there's certain elements of it that feel a bit like um camp like a little bit kind of um yeah what's I don't know how to describe it like like, again, like Fifth Element, you know, that sort of kind of, you know, that kind of visual, very visually um, specific kind of like, it's just like outer world, like alt world. <laughs> Some, yeah, something. it's kind of like absurd, but not, yeah, I know sometimes that it's used in a negative sense. But yeah, but like it's absurd, absurd realism. Parentheses complimentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like absurd realism. So I thought that was really, really fun. And Yeah, I mean, the other thing that really stood out to me that I think makes this movie work are those... It's three central performances, really, and it's everyone's bringing a slightly different energy to it. Like, they're all bringing something to the party. So, Mon, I want to ask you who... I mean, this might be tough. I have somebody who is my favourite. Did you have who was who was a standout performance? And we'll see if we all match. Jamie Foxx. Jamie, Jamie Foxx? Fox? <laughs> oh, mine was different. I love Tierra Paris. Yeah. Okay. I thought no, she I mean, had it's, incredible... It's, it's, I mean, everyone's good. But she had such yeah. incredible comic timing. When she's yeah. in the elevator and she's trying to get her gun out. I was yeah, howling. So funny. <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah, Jamie Foxx was great. It's. I mean, I was going to say it's infinitesimal degrees... And I think it is, but Jamie Foxx for me is just a, a no. I mean, he, he's always been a very funny dude. I don't think I've ever seen him in a film be as funny as he is here. He has so many fantastic one-liners, uh, and all of them pretty much land. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and his double act with Taylor and Paris before they move into sort of a, a proper trio, I think is great. Um so yeah, it, it, Demi Fox for me. But I, I was really, I was also very impressed with John Boyega. Um, he sort of is shouldering much of the dramatic weight of this film. And it's really interesting. I think for the first act or so, he of course has dialogue, but it's more the, his physicality that comes to the fore for me that I really take notice of. The way he stands, the way he carried himself, the attitude he was showcasing really fit the character. And then as more of the plot unravels, you get to see him in different guises. And without spoiling it, I was really impressed with his accent work, um, especially late on in the film. Um, when you see the film, you will know what I'm talking about. But mm. that also really stood out to me. Um, and mm. he's had a very, very busy year. I think he's, he just continues to get better and better. Um, obviously, the great stuff with Attack the Block, which this film reminded me of at times. Um, and then had Star Wars, but post Star Wars, you think about what he's done. Probably the the best success story. Well, no, I say that Oscar Isaac, probably about that too. Um, but yeah, I continue to be. I mean, I think positive. Oscar Isaac was already doing pretty well pre Star Wars, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, inside inside Lewis Davis. Davis. Yeah. Um, That's a, a, a year. What was it called? What was that one? That was that one with Jessica Chastain. Not the most, most violent. violent. Most violent. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. Very disrespectful. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that film. Um, but yeah, 
I thought he was great too. I mean, not to compare, like, I mean, not to be a thing, but if you compare his to Daisy Ridley, two actors who really were like, that was their breakthrough mm-hmm. role, right? I definitely think he's had far more interesting and um, far more interesting career paths than Daisy Ridley. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I also think he's producing and stuff and doing it himself, so he's making his own choices, which I think really works. But you know what? Like, I have to say, like, the direction in this is just so well done, the kind of vision for what it wants to do. Like, even, I, you know, and, and, and I suppose sometimes I feel like, oh, it reminded me of this and that. And I think it's just because I feel like this is someone who, it, when I, I feel sometimes we say it reminds me of that, it's someone who's like, that's why I feel the quality of, like, the filmmaking is there. So, like, you know, there's moments where I feel it was like David Fincher, or like, you know, I could see a bit of like, um just in like the visual, just in the visual aesthetic and the world building of it, like, and just the way the camera, using the camera and the way that they would move the kind of cinematography, like in like Fight Club, that kind of certain elements of it, that kind of being, because it's quite dank and dark in so many ways. And it, and obviously you're dealing with, you know, dark skinned black actors. So how, the, the ability to light them so you can see them and see that kind of, I think that's a real, real technique and really well, good collaboration between the director and the cinematographer there. Yeah, yeah. it looks fantastic. It does, it does not feel like a film from a first time filmmaker. Um, and that is very, very impressive. But we say that, though. We say that, though. But some of the first, like, Reservoir Dogs was, like, his first film. Like, there are so many ways, and I feel like sometimes people just, like, really got it going the first time. Like, that's, I mean, I do the first film club because sometimes people's first films are just really fucking good. It's you know? very true. This is very true. Um, but, yeah, the as I say, the amount of genres it's playing with and the ability of this film to really have something that it wants to say and really have a lot of very heavy themes, but never sacrificing the entertainment factor. Like, as we're discovering more of the craziness that's going on, which is in it, so, and it's really, really funny. There's one particular revelation at a chicken shop, which had me in stitches, but it's saying a lot about black stereotypes, and as the film goes on, it's, you know, it takes in uh, colorism and passing, and upward mobility it's got a lot on its mind and all those messages for me came through without me sort of you know thinking oh this has gone this is completely tonally changed to just a heavy ass movie for the rest of the time on it's very seamless isn't the word it's very it's able to transition between tones very smoothly and i appreciated that and again to be able to do that your first time out that's not easy that's very impressive mm-hmm. yeah some people do make really shit films <laughs> and they will not be featured in the first film club I might no they might on the podcast <laughs> we won't screen your movie but please tell me how you made it to <laughs> Harsher version of that. How did this get made? Podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We failed you. (laughs) I'm sorry. Nobody failed this movie. I think we've established. But let's still go to our our screen or skip because this is streaming on Netflix. It's not in cinemas, unfortunately. Hannah. Yes. uh, Stream. Defo. I'm on. Stream. Great week. And I also say stream. Watch. So go Oppenheimer first, go home, watch this, then Barbie after. Oh, wow. Okay. So you want Oppenheimer, Day Clone, Tyrone, Barbie. That's but it's over the span of different, and not all in one day. But I feel like if you're going to do 
You I would literally never survive in like a flint household where my mom would like literally like be like right military schedule. It's like one, two, three, four, five in one day. That's what we do. And it's like, but mom, when do we break for food? We don't. <laughs> bring the food because that's what we do on like New yeah, Year's exactly. Eve. You bring a packed lunch, and the food comes out the in the most, boring scenes. The most films I've watched in the day is six. That's that's my record. Hannah, I get the impression that you're more than that. I mean, how many? How many would that be? It depends on the length, right? I think they're like either the ninety minutes to a couple hours. Six might be six. Six is a pretty decent amount, though, if you think about it. That's like a full day. I don't know if you could yeah. get much more in there, right? Yeah. I watched all the Harry Potter movies at once. Once. That's like twenty. That's like crazy. Did yeah. you do that? Did you do a night thing or something? I did it for an article. Uh, <laughs> I did it for journalism. I did it for journalism. <laughs> this is a long time. I just want to add the caveat. This is a long time ago. Um, so but, eight films in a day. Sheesh. Well, it wasn't in a day because it took two days. Okay. Like I, I, and I did briefly fall asleep during. Was it Order of the Phoenix? There's one like you're really allowed to fall asleep in one, one of them. Um, but that's probably the most I've watched in one go, and it wasn't worth it. But anyways, <laughs> that brings us to, let's talk about some things that are worth it <laughs> in our hot take, Barbenheimer, they've got Tyrone, they've cloned Barbenheimer. There you go, that's it. Last Thursday, the Screen Actors Guild, or SAG-AFTRA, officially went on strike, joining the Writers Guild of America in calling for the guarantee of a living wage for its members and protections against exploitation and the encroaching use of AI. This is the first time in over 60 years that both writers and actors have gone on strike at the same time. The strike includes a pause on Guild members working for productions affiliated with AMPTP, American motion picture and television producers, as well as promoting that work through premieres, festivals, and award shows. At least 39 productions are able to continue filming, including two A24 projects, which was my thing I learned yesterday. A24 is not part of this organization. Um, Good for them, I guess, if they're not exploiting their workers. And so they've been issued special waivers from the Guild. So David Lowry is what is filming. Good for me. There are other exceptions. House of the Dragon will continue production since the series' cast are primarily UK actors working under equity, meaning they're actually not contractually allowed to strike with the US Union. And some of the films that have stopped production are Deadpool 3 and Gladiator 2. Oh no. I thought it was important to outline that stuff because I guess today it'd be good for us to talk about like what can people listening right now do and how should they react? Because I feel like everyone on the internet is really confused and just learnt the word scab and is screaming it into the <laughs> void. So, like, I what I would say to start, I think the primary thing you could do to help the strike is just really pay attention to what SAG-AFTRA and the WGA are saying and what the rules are mm. and that there are special permissions that, like, A24 productions can continue if people are under contract, they can't violate those contracts. Because I think getting really excited about calling people scab just doesn't help the strike. Also, I think there's, yeah, and also I suppose our position, really, I think it's good to clarify because yeah. I feel like I've been seeing a lot of stuff where it suggested that 
like this thing about critic there are people I maybe more in the US where like they're content creators I keep I actually need to stop doing like inverted like commas when I say things like that in an influencer I'm glad you I, I shouldn't have said anything because you couldn't actually see it I just had myself just being a really fucking patronizing this is bitch excellent but anyway content. this is what the I'm people sorry. want this is what they but there are, but I guess there's this thing about like um, if you, because some people who are con- content creators are also part of SAG. Some people are actors and also do film criticism. You know, people do these sort of things. Situation, but we are a UK-based podcast. Um, we are not affiliated with any unions, SAG, WGA, or anything like that. So technically, we're not part of it. Our job. Yeah, I think I is- might be part of Equity, but it's probably expired. <laughs> Yeah, but as you just laid out, equity doesn't, or doesn't count. And also so you will be seeing Clarice seconds. in a new season of House of Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the last thing I was ever asked to audition for was Game of Thrones. Was it? To be Lena Headey's nude body double. No. Oh I'm my God, that was so cool. Um, and I said, no thanks, don't. Because I'm sh- the person who did it did a great job. I did not want to get my boobies up. But I suppose it's kind of like if you're doing a job, and there's also a mixed thing of like promo. And it's interesting because... At the moment, actors and writers, they can't promote their shows. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, like, I do feel like we can promote stuff. We, if we want to promote stuff that we like, that's also helping the writers and people who made it, even if it's with a studio. What do you think on that? I Because think... I, I, I got invited to a bear restaurant the other day to watch yeah. the new season of The Bear. And I was like, oh, am I allowed to... Like post about because I loved it and I binge watched the rest of season two of the band. I think it's one of the I love that show so much. This is the thing. I think the the rules are very clear cut in terms of what scabbing is. Yeah. There's a very clear difference between scabbing and crossing a picket line. Yeah. The people who are scabbing are actors who are working and also influencers who are doing the job that actors would be doing if they were not on strike. Right. That is not going to impact us on this podcast. I am almost sure it will not guarantee impact anybody who's listening. So, like, don't worry about scabbing. The other thing would be crossing the picket line, which is more about, like, how do we show solidarity? And that, I think, is incredibly complicated. And I would say everyone just make up your own mind. And if you feel comfortable that, like you are doing what in your heart feels like support i've like made some decisions about what i want and what not to do and it's a lot to do with like social media posting i'm kind of going to shut that down in terms of posting about what screenings i'm going to but i would not say i'm not saying that's what everyone else should do Mm. because that's only what makes sense to me and it might not make sense to to somebody else so i think my main position is like we should all lead with kindness <laughs> and be understanding. Sorry, there's a guy literally looking at our window. Yeah, so I I think like in terms of what we can do and also listeners, like there's absolutely no clear cut line and I think don't I think we we shouldn't be overly anxious about it. Like I know there's stuff with cosplayers where the co- people should be cosplaying at because I obviously go to all the Comic Cons like there's an unspoken rule of whether you can cosplay as people who are characters from certain struck productions but then now finding out a24 i can just go it's pearl it's fine it's covered (laughs) but but that's the thing i think if we just all like 
move with kindness and understanding and if you see somebody who maybe you don't agree with what they're doing you don't have to scream scab at them unless they're genuinely scabbing that's a different matter but if you think they're crossing a picket line understand that there might be different situations people are under contract for things it's very complicated and it's as greta taught us it's okay for life to be complicated and it is complicated under a capitalist system. Mm, exactly. Barbie would understand. Exactly. One thing. So I it's would... okay that I posted a thirsty gift of myself with the bear branding. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Clarice, yeah. mother, please. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm sure Disney Plus is so and they're like, we have to give the actors what they want immediately. There's also like certain things where we're not part of that side of things. Like we're not we're 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 not part of that no. side of the industry. So they're <clears throat> expecting us to suddenly. This might seem like you know uh, you know a, a what about it, but like if suddenly there was a strike among writers, film critics. Not that there's ever that because we don't really they have like a thing. Be. But like right. I don't think we'd have like the WGA refusing to write films. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like it would never that go would the be other funny, way. Though. That'd be funny though, right? Maybe that's <laughs> it. I mean, maybe they would. Maybe they would. Yeah. I don't know. It is. It is interesting, though. I'm intrigued, about I suppose. Be, I'm intrigued about what we'd be striking about in in your mind, Hannah. The fucking shitty pay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like this is the thing. I think people also listening have to understand. A lot of the journalists, film critics, we have exactly the same deal. Like I, when I've been reading everything that the SAG after have been talking about, it's like, oh yeah, this pretty much applies to us as well. So that's what I was everyone's say. in the same boat. So I was going to say that people should uh, try and make themselves aware of. I posted it a few days ago in terms of their list of not demands, but things which they wanted to come under review, SAG AFTRA. And it was wild that some of the most simple things were just flat out rejected, <laughs> which is why, sort of looking at that, I'm thinking this is going to take longer than I probably initially thought because the mm. simplest things are like just flat out rejection. And if they're not even talking right now, even though day by day they're losing hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, uh, hundred thousands? H- hundreds, hundreds of, of millions. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Um, because their strategy um, is just to wait it out and hope actors and writers uh, run out of money, which is in, it, it, which is in and of itself heinous. Um, we're going to be here for a while. Um, they're gonna delay Dune that's what I saw I literally just read a thing Dune 2 may be delayed until 2024 which is look I will say if this leads to uh, the cancellation and shelving of Deadpool 3 I won't be mad (laughs) you really don't maybe okay okay Monkey's 4 they cancel Deadpool 3 but they also cancel Gladiator 2 no oh but you're not that excited about it I'll take it that doesn't no. that doesn't affect me. I refuse. That means nothing to me. How is Denzel and Ridley Scott? Are you kidding me? This is gonna but, be. But like, Denzel and Ridley Scott. They never make season three. Did of you the say band. Denzel and Ridley Scott? Yeah, Gladiator two. Denzel, Denzel and Ridley Scott. Denzel Washington's yeah. in it. Yes. Fuck off. <laughs> He's totally switched positions now. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm I saying, find it Anna. so hilarious. I find it so hilarious that Denzel has Denzel. What Ridley Scott? Denzel. What films have they done? No, Tony Denzel Scott did Tony Man on Scott. Fire. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, I said Tony Scott did Man on Fire, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. 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 And that also, was it. But um, Ridley Scott and Denzel. And Is that Tony Scott? The yeah. train one? Yeah, the train. Yeah. Okay. I like that oh, interesting, interesting. <laughs> I do find it funny that Paul Thomas Anderson says, I really want to work with Denzel. And it's like, mate, how are you not writing a role for Denzel Washington right now? If Denzel's having to take Gladiator 2, what are you doing with your life? Paul <laughs> Thomas Anderson, take- right, Denzel? I'm sorry, but like you're acting as if like a Gladiator Two was ever necessary, like in a supporting role. I see your point. Yeah, in a supporting role, right? I, Do you think it's a fr- he's like taking a s- it's no. gonna, if it's, if, Paul Thomas if, Anderson? If you are listening to this podcast, <laughs> I asked you when the Chris Pieces came out. When he do it? It's like I want to do it. Look, you're, you said you're friends with Chris Rock. You arrived my Rudolph. You've got it in. So write something for my man Denzel Washington. Danny Day-Lewis is gone. You don't have him anymore. He's, no. d- he's, he's You've gotta done. He's got to find a new guy and that new guy's Denzel Washington. If it is a supporting role, and I'm not convinced it is, it's going to be a chunky one because he was one of the first people to have announced and it's Denzel Washington and Bitly Scott. I feel like Denzel's not taking that if it's not something substantial. Um, and Gladiator, of course, Masterpiece, Initially, when I heard talk of Gladiator 2, I was like, eh, I don't have it. But given the cast that he has assembled for this, including, for me, the best actor of all time in Denzel, that is a film that I'm very excited to see. Even with Denzel, even with Denzel, I cannot be excited about Ridley Scott <laughs> going back in time. Denzel. <laughs> even Napoleon, I'm still like, even Napoleon, I'm like, what are you going to do to these Egyptians? What are you going to do to them? What are you going to do with yeah, them? Yeah, I don't man? have good advice about what her role is going to be. I mean, I'm excited because it's ancient history and also there's a lot of pretty men in it, but yeah, <laughs> I'm, a simp- I'm a simple soul. Hannah, <laughs> <laughs> your face when you find out that Denzel was in this film is going to be a picture that I'm going to remember for a while. That was epic. Yeah. <laughs> He's definitely going to play the mentor role. The thing with Guy David too is I already know exactly what the movie's going to be. And so I feel like I've, I can wait. <laughs> Man, because it's already in my head. Because I'm not, not going to doubt with this guy. The man's a legend. Just to bring this back to <laughs> Ice, but just to bring this back to actually what we're kind of like talking about yeah. and what it could mean. I think one of the really important things about what could be people could be making um, the most of right now, especially in a UK film industry, mm-hmm. is that one of the biggest problems is that a lot of independent cinema. Again, there's a small, there's a certain workforce that you can use, right? You can use all these crutch actors. Because so many of these TV shows and stuff are filmed in the UK and get paid a shit ton of money, all these people who, all these crew members, they won't do indie films because they've been blocked out for a certain amount of time to do a Marvel series, to do an HBO series, these big things are a big studio film and they can't work and because obviously they're going to take the bigger check, right? Now that those have been shelved, hopefully this could be a moment when like, all those people who like all these like crew members, you know, DOPs, like production designers, all, you know, even like gaffers and all these people who've been like pulled away could actually work on independent projects with British crew, British actors, and actually kind of push those out. That would be a really good thing to come. I don't know. A, 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 I suppose an intermediary positive thing to come from this moment, because that's the frustrating thing about, I think a lot of people in the British film industry talk about in that they can't get their films made because there just isn't an, anyone there to make them. And also, I think if the in, the independent... But the, uh, the one thing I'm slightly like, ooh, about is just because, obviously, these A24s are not part of AMPPP, AM, yeah. whatever, I get it wrong. 
I feel like doesn't always necessarily mean that their working conditions for everybody yeah. is perfect. So I'm a little bit like, I don't want to pretend that the indie scene is some like beautiful paradise yeah. that everyone is had. But if the indie scene flourished during this time and all these, you know, stars were like, oh, let me go but do it, these smaller projects. Yeah. That would be such a great show of like, F you, we don't need you to the studios. The only thing, that, but again, like again, getting into the kind of complexity of this issue as well, is that then you get these big stars who normally do studio stuff now taking roles from independent actors who True. now no longer get to make these films. And it's good to get funding, but it's also kind of that thing. These big stars, like, you know, love them, Mark Ruffalo, like all these people, they they can afford to wait this out. They don't need to be working. Yeah. What they could do is actually be producers. <laughs> And actually say, hey, let me put some of my millions that I made from Marvel and put it behind this little independent film. You know, yeah. that's what I would say, you know. I, I think that's that would be the way to support because most, most of these actors are producers now as well, so. Yeah, and I guess everyone listening, like, you know, there may be a period later this year where obviously, like, yeah, Dune and... Wonka, all the Timmy movies. Wonka! Everything. Fucking Wonka! You know, all the big I'm sorry, but I can't do it without thinking about Wonka. <laughs> um, What's that? <laughs> I, I was with a Warner Bros. Royal Brothers like PR person the other day, and she said Wonka. I was like, I'm really sorry, but every time I see hear Wonka, I just hear Wanker. <laughs> Wonka! <laughs> The trailer for that looks say. more fun than I expected. No, we can stay on topic. No, stay I'm on trying topic. to get my sentence out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I want to go home. It's getting late. I need to go. <laughs> um, Sorry, just to say, like, the, you know, there may be a period later this year where a lot of the stuff that the big movies may not be coming to cinemas, but there are still going to be films. Mm. So I think for everyone listening... The best thing you do is keep going to the movies and keep going even if it's stuff that you haven't really heard of or don't know. You Well, us at Fade to Black Pod will tell you what those movies are, but take this is a time to take risks and go see new stuff and just keep showing that. This is what I thought was cool about Barbie because it was all about how like the individual and people and people who make things and people who like take the things and appreciate them and use them are more powerful than capitalism and and the companies they are they can be separate they don't have to be trapped in that relationship so i think this is a good time to show to show hashtag free that i don't need another 300 marvel shows so thank you especially if they're of the quality of secret invasion Right, we're not getting into it. We've been on for two hours. But now. do make season three of the bat because I really like <laughs> yeah. that show. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is safest for you. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It makes a difference. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at Fade to Black Pod on Twitter. I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. Uh, I'm Anna Inesplint on Instagram. And I'm at I'm on the woman on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Threads. Oh, the Instagram one. Oh, yeah. I'm still on PlayStation. You can come be my friend there. <laughs> Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. Mm-hmm.